to the SoCal Summer Swing Out Podcast. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, Spotify, and subscribe to us on YouTube because today we have one of my favorite people, one of the people that is renowned worldwide, I would say in the swing dance world. Just a quick blurb about Jonathan. So last we checked, he has the most listeners in the U.S. for swing dance bands. So let me introduce to you all Jonathan Stout. Hello, good sir. Hello, buddy. Good to see you. <laughs> good to see you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Every like I like I was saying earlier, uh, you just put people in a good mood. You're <laughs> such a positive force for change just by like you being uh being around. It's like uh it's like a Heisenberg uncertainty kind of kind of thing of like, I don't know where he is, but he's making people happy somewhere in this orbit. So oh, yeah, man. man. I'm I'm even happier now that we're talking. Ah, Jonathan, you were, you were, you know, every time I see you, every time I hug you, it's just a nice feeling, man. You're just a good, <laughs> you're just a I good I just like buttering your bread because it's like, it's like, I feel like if I butter your bread, then your bread, your buttered bread just spreads everywhere and everything's getting good. So like, yeah, like it's, um, it's a mutual, mutual admiration society. Well, speaking of admiration, um, I did want to intro you because there are some people who may not know who Jonathan Stout is. So if you could give us an intro in who you are, and then we can go into your start, I think that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a Lindy Hopper and Balboa dancer who's 21 years ago, uh, along with Hillary Alexander, who's also a Lindy Hopper and Balboa dancer, um, started a swing dance band basically to cater specifically to swing dancers um, and modern swing dancers in the way that we all are and not in that sort of jump jive and hoo-ha zoot suit style but like in like a way that kind of befits the way we all love um and have reverence for this tradition that we're a part of um mm. and so um because of the ways that hillary and i and our drum our drummer for the whole run josh Colazzo, the fact that we were all um lindy hoppers first sort of informs what we do in a way that i think was especially at the beginning like absolutely novel I think Solomon Douglas was probably the only other Lindy Hopper slash musician who happened to be making music um, mm -hmm. for swing dancers really back then. But, and I mean, I, I'm sure there were people that sort of Lindy hopped, but like as far as somebody that like had competed in dance events around the country or like had taught classes, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, we were really the only ones. And, you know, if you look at sort of the, some of the top bands in the United States now, people like, Michael Gamble, Medjool Jazz Band, um, Naomi, they're all sort of like people that started out as dancers or are most notable as dancers that just happen to also be musicians. And mm -hmm. even people like um, uh, like Keena McKenzie and Gordon Al, like they've learned to dance and do have a, a, an appreciation for how the music hits the dance and how that might change what they do. Um, but also sort of just like a being in the scene and being aware of the tradition, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's what I do. I'm, I'm somebody that used to come like do, you know, Lindy hop like for fun and compete and, and all that stuff. And then started a band and then slowly or very quickly realized that um, despite my second place finish in the uh, 2002 Camp Hollywood amateur battle division, that my greatest contribution to Lindy Hop and Balboa was probably not going to be on the dance floor. Um, <laughs> um, 
yeah, like, like, you know, we did, we did the team division in 2002 at Camp Hollywood and we were on the first place team. So like, um, you know, I, I feel like I come by Lindy hop naturally and like, I really <clears> did it. I'm not like a band leader that learned like step, step, rock, step, and like sort of does it as a, as a stunt. You know? Yeah. Um, cause I've seen that and I, I find that really disingenuous, but like, you know, and the other thing is like, when I started dancing, we still had like the one of the largest groups of here in Los Angeles of sort of original era Lindy Hop and Balboa dancers still alive and practicing. And mm -hmm. so like, you know, John and Ann Mills gave my wife and I the cake topper at our wedding, like, uh -huh. you know, like Bart Bartolo and Frida Angela were at our wedding, like, um, this is sort of a backwards way of doing it. But like, like we played Hal Take Here's last on a public birthday party and I ended up like emceeing his funeral and I got to play at Jeannie Veloz's funeral and you know like all of those people were not like people I saw on video clips and didn't also know mm -hmm. and they knew my name you know mm -hmm. and, like it goes both ways and and you know that kind of reverence that I have for them is sort of specific and obviously like Hillary Alexander is, is a big part of our whole story because she's mm -hmm. the one who started Camp Hollywood, which was a crucial part of my development and sort of coming up with a platform that was all about reverence for these people um, that, you know, <clears throat> in the kind of Arthur Murray, East Coast swingified version of swing that was kind of mass, mass you know, popular, um, mm -hmm. that kind of forgets that there were all these people that actually Lindy hopped and did all these cool dances and, you know, um, we're in all these top movies and um, it's an important thing to sort of talk about how the racism that's baked into the sort of divide between what were mostly white LA area dancers in certain scenes and movies in the forties and then black Harlem dancers who are in certain other kinds of scenes. And there's, there's all of that. And we can get mm -hmm. into that a little bit further down the road, but, um, you know, we would see people like, um, Dean Collins or Hal Takir or Irene Thomas or Gene Belows or Kay Smith or Lenny Smith like in movies and be like, what is that? Mm -hmm. And then when mm -hmm. we got to actually know some of these people, it was like, wow, you know, um, and, you know, Dean passed on before I started, but like, you know, growing up also with people like Sylvia Sykes, who were sort of that connection directly to that generation and stuff. So anyway, but that, that's sort of, that's sort of who I am. I'm um, somebody that just had all this love for Lindy Hop and Balboa and these, this modern swing dance culture that we have and the, the tradition of it um, and wanted to serve this thing. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that um, the culture around music that we have now and have had for the last, say, 40 or 50 years since it was possible to sort of DJ for ourselves mm -hmm. rather than just take whatever a band gave you um, is really manifestly different than what the dance was created to. Mm -hmm. um, not in like what kind of genre of music per se, but just like the way in which the last 40, 50 years of Lindy Hop has been about Lindy Hopper's cherry picking music for social dancing in a way that a band in the 1930s or 40s 
wasn't doing because most of the people in a big room didn't actually Lindy hop proper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, so, but like we have this modern scene and like I said, we can unpack all of that stuff later. Um, mm -hmm. I just thought I was a swing dance DJ who was like, why don't bands play the same songs that I DJ in the same order with the same flow and the same lengths and all this stuff. Um, and then I realized, oh, actually, not only do they get a bunch of this stuff wrong because they don't care, but actually this thing that we're asking of them is a brand new thing that never before existed. So it's sort of like two hurdles. It's like one, mm. stop making every song a jazz odyssey and maybe play in the genre and play the, the style correctly and the feel right. But then also like, oh, and then be hyper selective of what you play in the tempos in a way that even the original era bands didn't have to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, in all of this, I think that I speak for a lot of dancers when I say when you play for when your band is playing, it's just a different energy. And when you're talking about the hyper selection of songs and the tempo, it is intentional, right? You don't just play whatever whenever you intentionally pick the song and the tempo so that it flows like a dance would want it to flow, right? Yeah, I mean, like, and I think there's an art to like building a DJ set, for example. And mm -hmm. like, I don't know what the ideal tempo change from song to song is. Like, I feel like I tried to figure a lot of that stuff out. And then it was like, okay, well, if you're only moving four or five beats per minute up and down, it's sort of like boiling a frog and you never really yeah. to the, um, So like it, it, even then, like it, it, it starts to be something that's unquantifiable or maybe I just need to do more on it. But like, yeah every single set I look at as sort of like peaks and valleys. And um, I think of this, the way that I was describing sort of a culture DJ, DJing it for itself and basically hyper curating itself into having a brand new genre of music, mm -hmm. or at least a, at least a sub genre is very yeah. much like the birth of hip hop, the birth of house music, where um, there was this part of a greater thing that somebody was like, Oh, I liked this part, especially let's like really, do that a lot and then it mm -hmm. sort of starts to be a new thing and like um that's very much what i was doing i was like going okay what part of these records would um would we actually want a social dance to like not every single song on this benny goodman cd or this count basie cd um but like cherry picking the really good ones and then like well you know you're gonna want some fast ones you know you're gonna want some slow ones and then just like a dj knowing how to rock a party like there's this great documentary it's from 2001 called Scratch, and it's about the history of kind of turntablism. And one of the dichotomies it sets up is like the difference between a DJ with like super deep crates that just knows the perfect record to put on next and mm -hmm. knows how to rock a party versus a guy who's like, you know, like it's really mm -hmm. technical. It's like, well, that's cool, but like after a minute, like people are like, okay, what's the next, the next, <laughs> right? Um, and you got to build it up, you got to break it down. And so, like, I also think like a lot of modern electronic music, like there's a lot of parallels and like the main difference is in our dance, we don't have a way to politely terminate a dance before the song is over. Mm -hmm. Like, sure. Like if you, if you're like, I need to terminate this dance, like I need to like stop, like you can tell your, your partner that, but at a certain point, like our social contract just doesn't really explain like, um, yeah, so I'm kind of done with this. Like, <laughs> this is like i don't know how to bow and you do and like i want to lindy hop this fast but you're kind of tired and like uh, or maybe i suck and i can't lead you and i don't know why this isn't working like there's 
you know, again, no, I don't want to make it about whose fault it is, but like, right. you can dance with an amazing dancer and just not have a connection that works. And like our contract in Lindy Hop is you kind of finish the dance unless someone's in danger mm, <laughs> or, mm -hmm, in, or mm -hmm. someone's in pain. But like, if it's just sort yeah. of like sucking, like you just stick, you stick it out and yeah, like, you know, so we have to, the song has to end otherwise. And I've, I've heard that in other genres of dance, I think tango and stuff, and there's other, some other, dance, there, there's a way that you can sort of like, be like, okay, thank you so much. And then like, and that's cool. And not like, mm -hmm. you know, so like, that's a big part of it, but like a modern electronic DJ, it's like, it's all about like, build it up, build it up, build up the drop, ah, boom. And then it's, boom. you know, yeah. and like, you can't, I mean, I do think of that in the arrangement, in the context of an arrangement of a song, but also like the flow of songs needs to sort of have an arc that makes sense because you kind of want to build up to something. And then after you, you know, hit that, that fast tune mid set, maybe you want to break it down a little bit, you know, but then there's like, okay, well, you can't just like fast, so fast, so fast, slow because you never really get your true medium. And I think a lot about like what the median tempo is, uh, or, or maybe even the mean tempo depending, but like, no, the median, that's what I meant. Uh, mm. Like where sort of true middle is and then what's yes. below it and what's above it. So yeah, when I, when I plan a set, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. And I do plan my sets in advance. I think it's, um, I watch somebody like uh, um, uh, uh, Gordon Webster, and like, mm. if we were a D and D chart, like I would be lawful good and he's chaotic good. Cause like the way he band leads, <laughs> is just sort of like, okay, you go, and then you go. Maybe it's all in his head in advance. <laughs> but like, for me, it seems like everything's at the last minute and it might not come off and it might, and I don't even know. And that's just like terrifying. And I, I somebody who re received an ADHD diagnosis later in life during the mm -hmm. pandemic, I realized executive function is a really a thing I think a lot about now and think of mm -hmm. what I do in terms of that. So like, I want to make all the decisions up front so that I can mm. save the executive function while I'm playing for, instead of worrying about who's going to go next every single song, I can just, you know, let the chart do the work, let the arrangement mm -hmm. do the work. And thankfully the way I tend to do things, like if we want to like call an audible, you can. Like it's, yeah. it, I tend to write things that are like sort of movable in a way if needed be, but like it's, I like to do all that work up front. So like, I always plan a set list and I've got to be able to deviate. Like, you know, it's like playing a DJ set. Like you can plan out some tunes to play, but mm -hmm. like, um, you, you can't just like commit to a playlist and then walk away and know that it's going to be the same thing as if you were doing live. And the, the other big difference between DJing is like, I don't typically plan a DJ set out because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm not doing any, anything during that whole song for me to be able to think about what song I'm playing next. Whereas like, if I'm in the band, I'm playing guitar. I have to think about what chord comes next. I can't think about what song comes next. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, but the, the only other thing I'll say about energy is I definitely do think about flow and I do think about all these things, but I also think about um there's a specific feeling to late mm. 30s and early 40s swing music that is different than later forms of jazz and earlier forms of jazz and if this was electronic music every one of those would be a very different subgenre 
and they would be in a different section of the record store and then there would be 500 artists that all sound exactly like that and they would just be like stratified same thing with like heavy metal like oh you're power metal okay well yeah power metal and thrash metal are like this but like one's about dungeons and dragons and one's not so that's okay <laughs> or whatever you know yeah. like, like and the genrefication of things can be not great because it's pigeonholy and you know whatever but there's a certain feeling and in the same way that like the entire electronic music tree can be broken down into things that are house meaning they have a four on the floor thump mm -hmm. no matter what else is happening if it's got a four on the floor it's sort of on that house tree and then there's this other tree called breakbeat where you're basically sampling like a james brown record more like a hip-hop thing and that's a different thing because it's not thump 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 and then you know obviously there are some people that might might do a little bit of both but it's amazing how many artists are like no this is what i do and in the same way that like um a break beaty song like say the chemical brothers brock block rock and beats like that's a different thing that like that's that's a that feels different in your body yeah and so like the thing that i like about swing music with a capital s like the genre of swing lopping off the things that came before it and the things that come after it is that it's got this thumpy four on the floor and there's a way in which like the notes don't land late they kind of land like on it typically i mean you can mm -hmm. you can also play them late for effect at times but it's just like dancing there's no there's no only one way to do a swing out, but there's a pretty default way. Mm -hmm. So I would just say that like the default way is this kind of like really on top of the beat, like aggressive sort of like, we're not waiting to get there. We're not trying to be too cool for school. And that hits my body in a certain way that makes every tempo I play feel more exciting than it would if I laid back. Mm. Um, and I think we've all had the feeling of like, a song that is not giving you enough energy to justify how fast it is <laughs> you know and, and like yeah. this is a little bit of an aside but like some people talk about oh yeah that's a good bow band is it mm. why why do you say that well because we just go and we just like sit there and and do balboa all night was well, is that because you're like moved to dance or because all of the songs are too fast and too boring and so you just do Balboa all night rather than trying to Lindy hop. Mm. And I think that that's sort of a misconception sometimes, like just because tempos are fast doesn't mean that they're good or that that's good for Balboa. Like if it's not inspiring music, I think the thing about Balboa that's specific is there's no eighth notes. There's no ands. It's just, mm. you know, step, step, hold, step, step, hold. So quarter, quarter, half. So you can go so much faster so much more easily and especially since so much stays in closed position if you're doing sort of like a pure bow kind of thing like mm -hmm. your mean can easily be so much higher without trying and i think there are songs where they're relatively fast and not that exciting that one would only really ever want a balboa to because if you had to lindy hop to it it'd just be too tiring mm -hmm. um so i think i think like like those kinds of things um, but specifically with that, that feel thing, when I hear, I want to get like, and if you really like 
make it like be really cartoonish about it. It's all like, yeah, like that's not, that's not me. I don't feel slinky. I don't feel sexy. That's just not in this body of mine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I try not to begrudge anyone else's taste, but like, this is the thing that I love about Lindy hop, this version of Lindy hop, this specific thing. And it's hard because a lot like swing, you're like, well, yeah, but Count Basie was playing until the 1980s. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't sound like 1938. Mm -hmm. The thing that I Mm -hmm. like is the 1938 thing. And I, I get mm-hmm. that that's cool too, but I, but when you don't know the difference, that starts to really bug me because, or when one doesn't know the difference, because it's like, oh, well, it's all good. Well, lack of discernment is sort of like the biggest sin because if everything's good, then nothing's good and nothing has value. Mm-hmm. There has to be things that aren't good. And if you just disagree with me, we have different tastes and I think you have bad taste, I have good taste. You feel the same way about me, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But at least you've made mm-hmm. a choice and you care. Whereas I feel right. like when it's all the same, it's sort of gets lumped together. So when you talk about energy, one of the main things is like, when I look at some of the newer Lindy Hop bands around the country, um, they don't have a guitar player. And sure, I'm a guitar player. So like, I'm watching for that. But there's something about it that is special. And it goes to that thump on the floor that it falls out of later jazz. Early jazz has a different kind of thump and I can talk about that. Um, but like, there's something about this perfect storm of the bass drum being on every beat, thump, 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 thump. The bass player going dunk, 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 with no, not a lot of eighth notes in between, not really holding the notes so they stick together, but just thump, thump, thump. Guitar player going chunk, 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 chunk. Now all of a sudden, if it's chunk, 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 boom, thump, like that, that offbeat like seems like pop so much more because it's against this firm bass. Uh-huh. And like, so when I hear, there's a, there's a version, I won't, I won't poo on whoever recorded it, but there's like a modern version of like Artie Shaw's Lady Be Good. It's a note for note. Mm-hmm. Other than the solos, it's literally the same arrangements. It literally came from the right charts. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a real thing. But instead of, where it's got this really tightness it's like it swings so too much and it starts to lose that energy it starts to like land late and it's not the same thing so like for me so much of what i love about lindy hop and what speaks to me about lindy hop is energy yeah and Again, without naming names, I will say Hillary once saw a band. I, I even heard about this secondhand, but it's one of mm-hmm. my favorite things that Hillary's ever said. Um, but she saw a band that will remain nameless in the back, you know, like 20 years ago or whatever. And they played yeah. Benny Goodman's Rollin, uh, written by Mary Lou Williams. Um, mm-hmm. But it was da 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 And it was all like kind of slinky. And she's like, wow, they really cut the balls off that one. <laughs> for me like that's what it is like there's this like this energy that comes from swing era or things that have that same beat that are later recordings but that have that thump and you know almost everything after a certain point in the mid 40s to late 40s starts to just lose that and the mm-hmm. sort of like generic form of jazz rhythm is this backbeat thing where instead of every beat kind of being the, the main beat and sure, you can add like a hand clap on top of that, but it doesn't take over. But if you yeah. listen to like 
every R&B song, and I mean early R&B, like, like Louis Jordan, blue, that stuff, if you listen to early rock and roll, soul, whatever, every music that's come after that, it's about the hand clap. It's not about the four on the floor. It's about the hand mm -hmm. clap. Disco adds the beat back, add, adds the four on the floor back in, and that's what made disco different. Mm -hmm. House, same thing. But like, now it's, it's about the... Like, and when you anchor to that, it sets you in a different position. Mm -hmm. um, and like, when you have a modern drummer that doesn't know that or doesn't care, or it's a lot like doing an impression. If I, if you give me the line, a la Arnold Schwarzenegger, you mm -hmm. know I'm doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. Get to the chopper. But if I had to like do the Gettysburg Address in that, it would sound ridiculous, and it wouldn't <laughs> sound that much like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It would yeah. sound like a bad Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. Four score and seven <laughs> like you know, and it's the same thing. Like there are drummers that just don't know or love or care about the style. Um, mm -hmm. I saw one band warming up once. And I just saw that like everybody except the band leader did not care about this music. Mm. Because when they warmed up, it was, you know, I was like, so yeah, that's what you warm up on. Mm. You don't, you don't seem to like this. You don't like, you know, uh, like if you don't know enough or care about this music, like maybe you can do the impression if I feed you the line. Mm-hmm. But the minute you have to like improvise in character, you, it falls apart. And I think a lot about the fact that like what I'm asking my musicians to do on a lot of levels is basically improvise a Christopher Guest style improv movie, mm -hmm. except it needs to be historically accurate. <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be historically consistent. So like all the accents have to be right, the clothing's right, the, the verbiage. Um, like that's on one level what I'm asking them to do because the anachronism is what takes me out of it because those are the things, or at least the anachronisms that I notice and bump on are the things that make other kinds of jazz, other kinds of jazz. Mm -hmm. When somebody goes, that's like bebop vocabulary. And like, you can throw a tiny bit of that in, in a swing band and it sounds like 1944 when the things were sort of changing. But like, mm -hmm. if that's all you know how to play, then it you clearly didn't listen very much to Lester Young or Coleman Hawkins or Chewberry or anybody. And then you just don't know it. And so you're just gonna sound like, I think in America, we, we sort of forget like, you know, the effect of accents because our accents are really starting to like blur. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But like, you know, you have preconceived notions when you hear somebody with a different accent. Some of them mm -hmm. are racist mm -hmm. as hell and not mm -hmm. cool. Some of them are, um, you know, just classist. Some of them are just regional. Um, but like we have preconceived notions. And so when someone comes in and has the wrong accent, it's just something you bump on. And again, like, I don't want to put too fine a point on it because there can be all these negative things of like, oh, you shouldn't be who you are. Well, that's not what it is. But like, if you're who you are, should you be in this band <laughs> like this? You don't care about this. And like, at, at, at the end of the day, like, 
what are you adding to this that's of value because you're kind of fighting against it um mm. anyway but so i just it all comes back to energy and it all comes back to being a dancer first i felt that when i heard that to ding ding to ding ding to ding that it like it just hit different and mm -hmm. like and I, I guess like definitely in the early part of when i was dancing there was a sort of like groove thing that happened um especially here in la and like i hated that music <laughs> I just, it wasn't it wasn't that i thought it was bad jazz or that i thought it wasn't good music it it, it was because it just made my body do things in a way that i didn't like right um, for you yeah yeah and and the part of swing dancing that inspires me and that speaks to me is this kind of this particular style and i think the last 25 years have been a pretty good uh test case for the fact that you can stay fairly within that tradition and innovate mm -hmm. within it rather than turning it into something else because like if i look at something like west coast swing number one i don't understand why they still call it swing because there's no swing in it there's no mm -hmm. but like you look at like a modern west coast routine and there's like no basics in it like it's like it's almost this whole other thing and there was a dj that was on um Ryan uh, Swift's podcast, The Track, um, uh, I can't remember his name right now, but he was a West Coast DJ. And he was mm -hmm. a kind of a second generation West Coast dancer in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And John Festa. Um, and basically West Coast made this, around the same time, made this decision different than Swing, where in Lindy Hop, we kind of decided to mostly hew to relatively traditional music. Mm -hmm. And West Coast kind of said, screw it. Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, it's all fair game. So you were talking about the track and how you had a West Coast DJ, John Festa, come on, and he was talking about the music, yes? Yeah. So basically that community decided to like throw open the doors to all kinds of music. And mm -hmm. that's great. Like they do what they do. And I know that there's a whole generation of older dancers that were like, oh, but this isn't the thing we like. Um, and in Lindy Hop, we kind of decided to go the other way. Like we did still keep to sort of traditional, you know, pre-1960s styles. Um, and I think that if you look at like the last 25 years of competitions and performances and all sorts of things, like the dance didn't suffer. Like the dance is awesome. Like there's still amazing stuff happening. And like, we've done all, we, there's been a lot of work to kind of improve a lot of the representational issues and stuff. But I think that like, at the end of the day, and that's obviously still ongoing, but like, as far as like whether or not this thing that's grounded in a tradition needs to be like thrown, the doors thrown open to sort of accept everything. It's like, no, it it's in this tradition and there's plenty of room to innovate and to keep it alive. Um, mm -hmm. And I think about like, I say it on on stage sometimes. I'll reference um, uh, this thing I heard from a friend of mine, um, and then I'll joke that well, I heard it when she said it on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but like when Latasha was on that NPR podcast, like she was talking about, you know, finding your place as an artist in this thing where all of these great artists that you know and love have already made this music and like or made this dance, and you're like, what do I have to bring? Like, I mean, I think about it like there's already been a Duke Ellington and an Irving Berlin. Whoever needs to write another song, like you know um, yeah but 
at the end of the day, like you have to participate in the art to keep it moving forward. And, um, but I, I think a lot about the fact that like the tradition, it's, it's within a tradition and that um, I'm sure there are ways that that can be gatekeepy and shitty and not good. And I don't, I don't want to do that, but like, there's a thing that makes swing special and different than later forms of jazz. And like, that's the thing that I think is special about it. Because mm -hmm. if you just put on 50s Count Basie and dance to it, I don't think that's the same thing. I think that could be a different thing. Or like, or Lou Rawls, wait, you know, uh, I'd rather drink muddy water or whatever. Or like, I know we've all kind of learned not to play spirituals, but I mean like Wade in the Water by Ava Cassidy was like a gold standard of dances for a long time in that kind of groovy tradition. And I was like, no, thank you, not, that's not the feeling I, that's not the feeling of the Lindy Hop that I care about. And I think we've all learned better that like Lindy Hop didn't stop at any point and kept going. Um, but like the thing that I like about Lindy Hop is that that particular era of it and that particular style. But at the end of the day, it comes down to energy. So when I think about like what I'm gonna put out for dancers on a floor, it's the stuff that I wanted. And that back in 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, like you did not get. Right. And I think that throughout this entire conversation, a common theme that I've been hearing from you is energy and feeling. And it very much comes across that you have a passion for this. You care about this because you care about how the dancers experience the music that you're bringing out, right? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Um, I think a lot of times there's a, there's, there's a quote in the movie, High Fidelity. It's not what you're like, it's what you like. And I think a lot of times, like, you know, the things that bother you and the ways you react to them can sort of be like the negative impression of a positive mold or a positive mold of a negative impression. So like for mm -hmm. me, I care about dancers because I am a dancer and I was a dancer who just got tortured by bands that would play seven minute songs and all the songs would be either too fast or too slow. And, um, and then I would get all of this stuff that wasn't swing music. It's like, look, I like early jazz, but I don't want to dance to it very much. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's 50s Count Basie is great, but that groovy feel, not the way my body wants to move. And like, especially early in the swing, quote unquote, revival, which um, problematic. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but like in that sort of 90s time, like you had all these like vaguely retro things being thrown at swing dancers. Like here, here's Rock and Robin. Here's Crazy Little Thing Called Love by Queen. Like that's rockabilly or rock and roll. Why are you giving that? Here's Fly Me to the Moon. That song was written in 1958. No, <laughs> 1938, mm -hmm. figure it out. Like this is the thing mm -hmm. that I like. And so for me, a lot of it was just this knee jerk reaction to all these things that were like, oh, hey, you like this, you'll love that. And I think we probably all had the experience of like getting into something and then like a friend or a parent who doesn't know anything about it gives you a gift sort of in that thing. And it's like, close but no cigar and you're like i mm -hmm, really yeah. appreciate the gift thank you but actually or you know to put it in a way that does assign some blame because you don't want to like just you know but like somebody that didn't care enough to tell the difference because they they're like oh you i think of you as a cartoon character and you like this thing and i'm not mm -hmm. going to care enough about it to get it right so here you go um mm -hmm. and and so for me it was just about valuing that stuff because it was important and, and 
the, the tradition of people like all of those dancers I mentioned, like I, I never got any Frankie time. And then mm. by the time that I, I got Frankie time, I, every single time that we played for him, I was embarrassed um, because I didn't have like my A lineup. Like I never had Josh mm. um, playing. And I just was like, this isn't what I'm proud of. And so I never, I was afraid to talk to him. And then it was sort of too late. But I did spend mm. some time with Norma and I got to ask her a bunch of questions at Beantown over the couple of years. And I spent all these time with these LA dancers and got to have dinner with, uh, with Don Hampton um, after a Midsummer Night Swing one time. And, you know, I really feel like it's about their legacies and valuing what they did and not being like, there's so often that later styles of jazz pay lip service homage to earlier styles, but they don't care about it and they don't mm. actually represent it in any way meaningfully. And mm. so like part of it was just being a dancer who's like, why do these tempos suck? And like, can I, can we just wait till the DJ comes on? Cause this band is not great. Um, and part of it was that, but part of it was also like, really like, yeah, this isn't the thing. Like this is this is this is jazz. This isn't swing jazz. That's a separate thing, and it's a lot like somebody being like, "Oh, hey, I heard you. Uh, heard you like rock and roll," you know. And then they give you a record, and you're like, "Oh, that's not that's not what I'm into," you know. Mm -hmm. Or like you're like, "Yeah, I'm into. I got into like classic rock," and you're like, "Okay, here's a Slayer record," and you're like, "Oh, that's not quite the same thing." So, but yeah, like so much of it it was like i just want to be able to make music that's actually fun to dance to and inspiring to dance to and doesn't torture people you know i mean like if it's a killer diller at the end of the night yeah like it might it might get a little extended just but like then maybe that jam circle is going to happen and like maybe that you mm -hmm. know but like if i'm playing a song like i'm not going to make it three and a half more than three and a half minutes most of the time because what if you're the person in that dance that's just not going great and both of the partners like i can't wait for this to be over Mm. You know, like I don't want to be the reason that you're just stuck in a kind of unfun thing. See, that is one of the things I really appreciate about you as a person and as a band leader, because just the very notion of the 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 feeling of Lindy Hop and then not playing a song is too long, too slow, or too fast, and not over four minutes long. That already I feel like sets you apart because you care so much about the dancers they may not even realize it they'll dance all night and they will dance that four minute three minute three and a half minute song and be like, man that was amazing another three and a half minute song at the right tempo that was amazing and i don't think that dancers fully realize the gift that you give when you play at at that tempo and care about them without telling them you know yeah well one thing one thing that occurred to me to mention is like i didn't create that culture oh, yeah. of the three and a half minute song recorded history did and then mm. 40 years of djing to ourselves created that and the, mm. the the um the expectations we have that are generated by mostly being dj'd original era music are the expectations we have our attention spans as dancers are set by that mm -hmm. and mm. that's something that's pretty similar all around the world and I mean, I think every scene can be different. I remember the first time I went to Seattle, I was like, wow, this scene just median so much faster. <laughs> they're, they're, they're just like so much faster. And this was like in 2007. It's like, wow, mm -hmm. this is like 180 is medium here. And that seems fast to me. Um, but then like, 
you know, you go to other places and like the medians like in the one twenties and they're like, <laughs> I can barely get going. Mm. And you know, it's all about what they're DJed. And so like, depending on how, how little people travel in a scene and how traveled the, you know, you can have different pockets of different variation, but like writ large in the kind of broader world, like we've been dancing to the same Benny Goodman and Count Basie and, uh, Duke Ellington and Jimmy Lunsford, like we've all been dancing to Taint What You Do by Jimmy Lunsford and that recording this whole time. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that song isn't seven minutes long. And mm -hmm. every time we hear that, I mean, in that case, we all do the shim sham, but like, <laughs> you know, uh, there are all of these other Pavlovian responses that we've been programmed by just years of everybody playing music that's more or less this three or four minutes and within these tempos. And so our expectations and our, um, uh, you know, how long we can pay attention, you know, our attention span, that's what I meant to say. Our attention span is said by that. We can all, I think we've all been programmed and I don't, I don't want to say program like it's a bad thing. I think it's just what it is that like, that's how many moves a lead can remember. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. At a certain point, like, you only need as many moves as to get you through three and a half minutes. And then like, <laughs> remembering any more than that starts to be. Um, <laughs> yeah. So like for me, like it wasn't so much like, I think this is the only way to do it. And this is the best way. And I'm glad that it's three and a half minutes. I'm like, this is just a recognition of where our culture has been and where our culture is at and realizing that like deliberately trying to not play that way is ineffective and unfun and why would you mm. do that like and again like i thought it was a lost art and it turns out it's an art that never before existed because if you think about the savoy ballroom it wasn't a room full of people doing lindy hop especially not in 1939 mm. maybe in the 50s most of the people lindy hopped but like in the 30s and 40s like most of the people were just squares on dates and they were just fox trotting or whatever social dance that was not like legit lindy hop the way we think yeah. of it. and there were like you know some jitterbugs over in the corner like really throwing down so like the tempos were median faster because foxtrot is a step step slow step step slow kind of dance mm -hmm. and so like doing that below you know 170 starts to become like work so like that's why the medians are sort of higher and obviously people like slow dance slow danced and so there's there's all these things that people did back then that are not happening now and like yeah I know there are people that were like, oh, we should all learn waltz and tango and, and foxtrot and be and do all these dances as a part of what we do. And I'm like, sure, go for it. Mm. Has it worked? <laughs> like our culture has pretty much as a thing moved on. And if somebody wants to like start doing that, they're going to face an uphill fight. And I, not to say that they shouldn't, but like our culture is what it is. Like all of like, you know, I would for a while, especially right up to the pandemic, you know, I would see kind of a crew of a lot of the same DJs at some of these big national events because they were sort of the cream of the crop. And, you know, there was a certain thing is like, yeah, these songs are the best songs. That's why we all seem to like, you know, we all had our own deep cuts that were sort of ours, but like, um, like I would hear, and I, when I say ours, what I mean is like there, I would have to make sure at Lindy focus or something to give them set lists because they were likely to DJ some of the repertoire we would be playing because mm. of course, those are the best. Those are the best things <laughs> to play. And you're like, no, don't do that. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, things like all-star jump, 
um, like those just get played like 20 times a weekend at, at some of those dances because that's the best stuff. Why wouldn't you? So mm. the culture is organically doing that to itself. And I'm just trying to say, like, I recognize that. Um, I think there are ways in which the DJification of swing can be a little inhumane for a band, especially when it comes to like contest music and like the, the amount of time that people are willing to sit through between songs. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, there's an inhumaneness to that when it's now it's just a DJ and they can just play any song. And I think people have unfair expectations of how different one song can sound from the next, because if you can DJ, a 30s small group recording and then a 40s big band recording and then even going outside the genre to other things like you know a, a female singer on one track a male singer on another track like you can get so many different textures and like one band on stage can only change themselves so much yeah so i i think there's in there there are some things that are maybe negative some downsides to the djification but but it is what it is. And especially in the ways that it sort of shaped our culture to have these expectations, it's like, you know what? I'm not gonna fight against that by being like, my jazz is so great that you should sit through a seven minute guitar solo. It's like, no, no, it's not, you know? Um, and again, like it's in service of the dancers and that's where the dancers are. So in on that topic of in service to the dancers, I know that a lot of dancers may not have that much insight into what a into what a band's view of an event or a night is. So I was actually curious, based off the things you said, what are some things that you wish dancers, organizers, teachers, and DJs knew about working with a swing dance band for an event in case there are any organizers listening? I would say the number one thing, or at least the thing that comes up the most is contests are are really inhumane and um they really take a toll and they take a lot of time and um and that like assuming that a band can play like a 15 minute song for your contest final is like maybe not mm. the best the mm. best thing um and like i have a lot of reverence for doing contest music right and it came from watching bands screw competitors by playing not good contest music and then mm -hmm. really helping out other competitors who would get the good part of the song. And I thought that was really unfair. And I, there was this one Balboa contest. I remember just clear as day that like the person who I thought was the better dancer got the tiniest, quietest part of the song both times. And the mm -hmm. person that won, got the shout chorus both times. The shout chorus being that last riff chorus of a song that's really, and I was like, that's not fair. And I had actually like provided that band like a chart they could have used and they decided not to. And they just screwed over this one. And I just, I thought that made me so angry because if I were that competitor, I'd be like, well, this wasn't fair. And I mean, mm -hmm. look, you get what you get. Like it's not, you're not, there's no way to standardize the sample you know, there's no, there's no control that you can kind of have as a baseline. Everybody's going to get something different. And part of what makes great dancing is the way that they react to this novel stimulus. Yeah. But there's a way to like make it so it's not so manifestly unfair. And then, you know, kind of after the birth of the jam style contests, which I think really like everybody getting a chorus or a half chorus or something, I really think, I think that, 
I don't want to rewrite the history, but I think that came from Ultimate Lindy Hop Showdown and things like that. Although they may have been the first to be like, okay, now we don't even want to have to care about whether it's a chorus or not, just jump in. Because um, <laughs> they recognize the sort of like limitation of having to have it be this strict thing. But I mean, like, it's a lot like that quote about democracy. Democracy is the worst kind of government until you think of every other kind. And then you're like, well, <laughs> um, I think that's sort of the thing about contest music. It's like that jam contest format. Like that's kind of the best format because it gives every person a spotlight. It gives every person a baseline. Nobody can sort of filibuster uh, and take up more space than somebody else. And it sort of puts everybody at the same tempo and there's a consistency that it's theoretically the same band playing the same song at the whole time. So it's not like, oh, I got a really clear recording and I got a scratchy recording and that's not fair. Um, and so like doing music for things like Camp Hollywood and ILHC for well over a decade, like I took it absolutely seriously that like, I want to make sure nobody gets the quiet part of the song in this unfair way. Um, mm -hmm. And like the things about like, okay, well, the last couple, and I mean, I don't know if, if I was the first person to do this, but I definitely made a decision about doing it and had a reason why, but like to put a drum solo after the last couple. And it was because I thought it was unfair that the last couple get screwed, that they have to go straight from their spotlight into the all skate. Yeah, Whereas mm -hmm. the first couple has had the whole time to rest. And, you know, I just thought that was like, you know, shitty. And <laughs> um, so like, that's why I started doing that like thing about and then, you know, it's kind of got to be an eight bar drum solo. So we all know when to come in and like, you know, like, all that stuff. Um, but like that kind of standardization of that, like really was really important, because I wanted to make sure every couple got a good flow. And like, I started doing things and I kind of almost don't want to reveal the secrets because if other bands can just figure this stuff out, like, they don't have to do the work yeah. and it bums me out but like but i mean like it is what it is like when it's a, everybody gets a chorus having one so soloist especially a brass player have to have a solo have to play a whole solo the whole chorus especially if they're going to be called upon to do that multiple times because everybody's going to have to go through twice or whatever that's a lot of time to have the horn on their lip with no real chill mm. and that's one of the inhumanities of these contests where it's like, it's just a slog and, and like, you know, and if it's like a really great contest with really great energy, like this is, this is great. But if it's just like another contest at another event, it's like, okay, well, you know, this is still just as hard for us. Mm -hmm. But so I started realizing like, okay, well, if everybody gets a chorus, if I, if I give somebody like a half a chorus of one soloist and then a half a chorus of another soloist, that's like two different stories. And that somebody has to like change mid mid chorus to like a totally new story that's going to come in with a totally different thing and never really pick up the thread of where they were. And that's mm. kind of weird. Um, and so it dawned on me like what was better and this is all trial and error too. It was better to like okay it's hard for one soloist to play that whole solo without really being taxing on the lip for the brass, especially. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just take a very common thing is in an AABA style song maybe the bridge gets given away to somebody else. And then the new, the first soloist comes back in. So that way they can sort of finish it. So a lot like kind of a novel or something or a, or a, um, um, uh, uh, oh gosh, uh, oh man, I'm, 
like things like the hero's journey, like these archetypes. Yeah. 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 Like these archetypes like have, have reasons. It's like, there's a reason why Harry Potter and Jesus and, and all the things follow the same arc and Luke Skywalker. It's cause it's up arc that we all respond to it. So the idea of like, okay, somebody starts the journey, then we switch off for a second, but then they get handed back the baton to finish it off. Like that's kind of a nice arc and you get this novel stimulus in the middle, but at least it's kind of cohesive. And so it's like things like that, like were really important to me. Um, mm -hmm. And just like, okay, you know what? It's really hard to do a piano solo in this thing because yeah. it's just never going to be at the same dynamic level. And like I said, I had that experience of watching a couple that should have won or could have won at least easily get, get, you know, a mediocre finish because they just got the quiet part of the song. And then, you know, like, if you're dancing huge to the quiet part of the song, you're doing it wrong. You know, that's not dancing to the music. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So like comp music is really important to me. And like, we had to sort of innovate with cowbell because their demands were just really above and beyond. And um, what I ended up doing was kind of coming up with this idea of writing my own music, like original yeah. music, um, just so it would be easy on the brass. Because honestly, the playing eight solo spotlights is inhuman. It's not fair and it's not right. We shouldn't do mm. it, but mm -hmm. that's what that event is. And thankfully, the writing of the songs is sort of an inspiring thing. But the other thing is they pay very well for that. Mm. And before the pandemic, I was never once paid or asked for pay for contest music. And that's something that very much needs to change because mm -hmm. writing contest music is hard, not fun, and it's a lot of time. Um, and, uh, and not even just to come up with a bespoke song, but just to like come up with a arrangement specifically for that purpose. And, you know, if the band leader is just going to phone it in and just like do an audible with one of their existing charts, it's like, okay, well, they don't need a, a reward for that. But like, if you come up with like a novel chart that's specifically for that and formatted for that, and you put in that work, like you should, you should get paid, especially if you're doing it all night. I was going to say, because after Lindy focus, you and I, our playing got delayed we were on the same flight <laughs> yeah you remember at the Asheville airport and probably the best way we could have spent two hours honestly just chatting yeah and I remember you told me you had to write what eight nine different um new arrangements is that correct yeah I'm not that was after focus last year going into Calbal and basically like yeah there's no time before Lindy focus to write those so I basically have to like come home from focus and then within two and a half weeks generate eight completely new songs. And I mean, you know, I don't have to make original compositions, original melodies. Like the first year I ended up using some existing songs and then writing brand new arrangements of them. Like a song that was just a very basic riff that had no answer to it. Like I would just take mm -hmm. that riff and then write answers. So it was like a big band song, not just like a, but like, then it was like, okay, well, I wrote some original material for this and that was really inspiring. And oh my gosh, you're gonna compensate me really well. Like, oh, I'm excited. Let me see if I can come up with some original stuff. And then, yeah, you know, like the year after that first year, I wrote one original song and we ended up playing that original song in a full version with the big band. And I, I honestly like, um, I don't think a lot of my songwriting, like I'm like, there's all these great artists that I wanna pay reverence to, but like somebody was like, oh yeah, who did that song originally? And I was like, nobody I made that and they're like mm -hmm. no really and like that's like the the best compliment that I could have had was that somebody thought something I created was just something from the original era um yeah because I want it I want it to feel consistent with that 
and to just yeah. be the good version, the best version of that, the more ideal version of that. Um, but like, yeah, I had to basically generate all of this new material from nothing. And part of, part of what's different about that contest than the jam style mm. is each one of those couples doesn't get a chorus of the same song one after the next. In a cowbell, each one of those couples gets their own songlet, mm. their own 90 second song, you know, like little songlet, little tiny mini song. And the first year it dawned on me, and I think, I think Inspiration Weekend had me do some things and I basically just recycled the same format for each one of the, the spotlights. And then I was like, no, that's dumb because then everybody mm. knows, can predict exactly what's gonna happen. And part of it is you don't want them to be able to predict it quite so easily. Right. Um, and so like every song had a slightly different structure and like, sure, most of them were AABA styles songs because that's most, most songs are like that um, in this genre. But I would always like stick in four bars here of a piano interlude or eight bars here, or let's jump back to the bridge out of sequence just to like make it so that it's not exactly by the numbers. And then the next one does exactly the same thing. And then mm -hmm. like using a blues to break that up. And that's, again, that's different series of eights, but it was always the same number of bars. So that like at the end of the day, it was gonna be 90 seconds or 93 seconds or whatever, cause they're all supposed to be the same tempo. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, that, that specific thing of like, they all have to be the same tempo is an incredibly inhumane limitation because I can't have any inspiration by speeding it up or slowing it down. It's all gotta be that same thing. And then how many songs of those do I need in a given night? So I've written mm -hmm. eight of them last year and now how many of those am I going to bother to play going forward? Because how many slots do I have to play a song that's 220 beats per minute on the nose? Um, but yeah, like I basically have the, the weeks between focus and cowbell to generate that material. Cause there's no, there's no time before that. And, um, and it's, it's an insane thing, but they pay very well for that. Yeah. So I was saying that I remember that time where from Lindy focus, when, um, we were at the airport, we were delayed for two hours, right? And you and I had this awesome conversation where I was just taking notes on my phone the entire time. Um, but we talked about a lot of this stuff as well, how you had to write eight different arrangements or so for Cowbell, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was a super fun hang to, you know, be stuck in an airport with you. I'll just <laughs> come be on all my delays. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was coming back from Lindy Focus and then basically two weeks later, we had Cowbell and there's not really any time to write the contest music for Cowbell before that. It's just, it's mm -hmm. not something that gets done. And so I basically don't have that two weeks. And um, typically the request is eight songs, although that usually somehow changes or, you know, I get as many get done as I get. But, um, and I don't have to write completely original themes necessarily, but that's sort of the goal. And that's one of the mm. things that really makes it special because after the first one we did, we ended up playing one of those songs like the rest of the year. And it was really cool to have an original song that we wrote for that. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think of myself as that great a songwriter per se, like there's been all these great ones, but you know, they're, they're really supposed to be what they are. Um, mm -hmm. And, but one of the tricks is like, um, I write all this material and the whole point is to make it not hard on the brass because mm -hmm. they're the ones that really suffer. 
And um, the way that it's worked out, that's usually the night that we have the Hampton and Duke Ellington material that's really extended range, gets really high. So that's already just like really brutal on the brass. And, mm -hmm. um, because that's the night that you would have the vibes and the brass and all that stuff there. That just right. makes sense in the flow of the event. But it, it does take out like almost a whole set's worth of time. And so we end up getting to play less of the rest of the music and it's really taxing. So I try to write it as easy as I can to play, but it's still like a real slog. And it does make a difference that they they pay handsomely for that. And, and that's important because it makes it something that I can like kind of look forward to. Yeah. But, you know, if I only got to do one night of big band music at an event like that, I would be like, no, I don't mm. want to waste, you know, a full quarter of the night and a third of my playing on a contest that like 10 people get to be in when mm. this whole rest of this crowd doesn't get that because the other thing is like especially post lindy focus and that transcription project and all that stuff like i've got 250 big band charts plus no more like 300 and i've got 150 songs in the campus five book i've got more tunes than i can play on any night in all of the different bands that i have um or at least the ones that that are you know work enough but mm -hmm. Like, I hate having to, like, pick which song to play and which songs we don't get to play. Like, that sucks. Mm. It's not fun. And at a certain point when you've only got, like, I, only, I know I only get 30 songs a night. Like, that's a pretty straightforward number of, like, over three hours, I'm going to get to play 30 songs. And if I got to cut out a bunch of those to, um, to play a contest, like, that sucks. I hate that. Mm. And I, mm. there's so many different... One of my sincerest pleasures in life is recommending someone, recommending mm. something to someone. Mm -hmm. Like if you ask me for a restaurant recommendation, like I take it really seriously. <laughs> and when you're like, oh dude, this place was perfect. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if this is a right analogy because I'm too old for this, but I feel like a Pokemon leveling up. No, you know, that's just... still, that's still accurate. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know. I, I'm too old for it. So I didn't see it, but like, but like, I'd be like, oh, we're going, you know, th that's like my favorite thing. It's so like every song we play is one of those things where I'm like, check this one out. Check this one out. Mm. Here's another thing that mm. I love that I want to share with you. And so I just like, I've, I've been really inspired by making original contest music. And that's been a really cool way to, to kind of cut against the sort of inhumanity of having to be a human jukebox in a way. Mm -hmm. um, but I just think like, the main thing is like what what should people be aware of it's like a doing contest music is hard under the best circumstances almost mm -hmm. no bands on earth care except for the some of the chosen few that really like doing it and are led by lindy hoppers and mm -hmm. um i think un unless you've almost been in a contest like that and had it go bad because of the music you know yeah like you know that that kind of thing and uh so you know it's important to me to do right. And it means a lot to be trusted with it. And like headlining ILHC for so many years, like I really knew the best of the best were going to be competing in this and that you could not, like this was their livelihoods for some of them, how they, how well they did in that contest was going to determine what events they might be asked to teach at the next year. Even in the contest, the next rung down is like how many of those people are going to be in the, ne the next division next year and how many of those are then going to level up. And then same from the, so I, I took it, I took it really, really seriously and it, it means a lot. And, but it, it can be really inhumane to have to do a 15 minute song. So everybody can go through twice. And I've had to tell events like, look, this is a local regional event and not everybody needs that much time. You're not, this isn't, you know, 
uh, Remy and Ramona competing against Sky and Frida competing against Peter and Naomi competing against like take it down a notch, you know, like yeah, um, that maybe this isn't the best use of the band's time. And that's the other thing. I think the number one thing that I think dancers and, and organizers should be aware of is like, it's about efficiency. Mm. Because I've never gotten enough money to really do things right. Not once, mm. never. Mm. Um, there's never quite enough money to do it right. Everyone is constantly subsidized Lindy Hop, subsidizing Lindy Hop with their unpaid labor. No one is actually getting what they're worth. None of the events cost enough. None of the events pay enough. And obviously then that means that if we raised all our prices, then nobody would ever have them events because some of the people wouldn't be able to afford to go. Like it's a hard thing, but you know, these events don't pay enough. And mm. I'm constantly having to do as much as I can with as little as I'm given. Mm. So part of why, um, part of why the last say five years before the pandemic really got amazing, I think for music, around the country is that I think we sort of developed this network of people like the folks in Asheville and, and North Carolina. So Gamble and then the Medjula folks, and then in various different cities like DC and New York and Seattle and Austin, um, we would sort of know who the sort of like amenable all-stars are. And then you mm -hmm. can sort of like take a core around the country and augment it with locals and have it be of really sufficient value because mm -hmm. it was never like, oh, can I bring my band out? Mm -hmm. Well, my band, my camp, the campus five is seven people. I know don't ever, don't ever name your band after a number if the number isn't the number of people in it anyway. <laughs> um, but like I have seven people in my band. I've never once gotten to bring all seven on a flight. Mm -hmm. I've never once gotten to have all 14 people that would make up a regular Jonathan Stout orchestra gig come. Now, originally, I like the first year of Lindy Focus, I got kind of weird about like, this should not be the Jonathan Stout orchestra because like most of these people are not in my band at home and that's my band at home. And then it got to the point where, well, actually the band that plays on the road had so many consistent people that played the book so much more than anyone ever did at home. It's like, mm. wait, I have two orchestra gigs a year at home and I have like, seven on the road and ken mcgee plays lead trumpet on all of them from dc like it, he's in the band now like that that's mm. I, I changed my kind of frame of reference for that but mm. like you know i'm basically always having to go who can i get and who will do double duty it's it, and a lot of times it's like there's a lot of people that i want to work with that i can't because mm -hmm. i can't get them to do multiple things and so like especially when we talk about like doing better with representation, it's like, yeah, but like, you can't swap this person out because that person's going to be band leading one of the nights and you don't, you can't pay them to just sit there and not play that night. So, mm -hmm. you know, like, and you're not even paying them enough to come in the first place. And a lot of our swing musicians are really grotesquely underpaid. And so when it, when it comes to getting people that are sort of outside our little orbit of swing bands, they're like, Oh, will you play for that much? No, no, thank you. You know, um, and that's really difficult. Like, I hate to tell you, Wynton Marsalis doesn't take my phone calls. You know what we I mean? We talked about that, yeah. Like, you know, like, um, not only is that sort of a separate world, but like, we're never going to pay him enough to come do one of our dances unless it's like Lincoln Center. And then it's like, well, that's his thing. That's not our thing. Mm -hmm. um, so like, um, you know, 
we're constantly having to do as much as we can with very little. And like, mm -hmm. I figured out a long time ago, that like the campus five is the least number of people that you can have in a band with the most amount of different textures and colors to give like a solid night of music. That's like, doesn't start to sound the same. I think mm -hmm. Grand Slam um, can do it, even though there's one less person, cause there's no, there's no vocalist for that. Um, mm -hmm. But even then, like, I think if, if we, if everybody danced to my, like the Grand Slam sextet all the time, people would get sick of that sound um, because it's a little more, it's, it's more just one, that one sound, but like the campus five, it's like, okay, well, I've got tenor and clarinet. It's one person who can switch. The trumpet can put in all sorts of different kinds of mutes. I've got Hillary or I've got instrumental. I've got, I can play acoustic guitar songs. I'll play electric guitar songs. I'll play, there's all these different textures that we can get. Does is Jim on the gig? Can Jim sing a song? If Jim's not on the gig, will I torture people and try to sing the song myself? Like whatever the, whatever the thing is like, those are all those different crayons in the box. And now I can color all these different pictures because I'm not limited to the same four colors. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of like eight bit versus 16 bit versus 32 bit. I can render it more um, in that way. So when it comes to efficiency, it's like, I think people don't realize like the limitations on what we would want to do and what we would choose to do if we have the choice. Like, there's all of these musicians I would love to work with, but like, I do want to be clear that like, there are some really strong reasons. And I think people just think it's because you don't care or you don't try, you know? Um, mm. And I, I think that's unfortunate. Um, but like, yeah, the efficiency of things is so important because it's like, well, what can I do? Um, okay. Well, if you fly me this person, that person, I can have them all three nights and then you're getting your money's worth. But like, if it's a person that's only going to be there for one of the three nights of a weekend, like, is that really worth a flight cost? That stops to make, that stops making sense. Um, and like, I recently had to make a choice for Camp Hollywood of like somebody very good that I would have to pay a little bit more, but it was local versus somebody, or not even pay more, but like, I would have to like either get somebody local that's very good or get the person we've been using, but that'd be a flight. And I had to be like, yeah, unfortunately the efficiency of this, this year is I need to save the money on that flight in that hotel room. And I was bummed about that, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, we're, we're constantly working under constraints. And I think like, especially post or pre-pandemic, you had a lot of events that were kind of a Mr. Potato Head model. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I still think that's the best, most efficient way to do things, but like you have a core of, you know, something like uh, my band and Michael Gamble and Keenan or Mint Julep or whatever. And then you sort of Mr. Potato had different things onto it. and. I think visually people would sometimes think, oh, it's the same band. But I think anybody that was paying attention would like be like, oh, these were like three entirely different bands. I remember one year we did Beantown where mm -hmm. it was like one night of Josh Colazzo's Candy Jacket Jazz Band, one night of, I think my orchestra and then one night of Gamble. And like, those were like three entirely different feels, entirely different mm -hmm. things. And it was like some of the same people. And even like, I think one of the bean towns we did like me with an octet then the orchestra and then gamble's octet and like gamble and i had overlapping tunes and not just tunes mm -hmm. but like we were going to play basically the same arrangement of something historical so mm -hmm. like we're this close together in style in a lot of ways because we're literally picking some of the same and yet you look at me you 
listen to my personality, you talk to Michael Gamble for a second, and you're like, oh, these are two very different people. And even with almost entirely the same band, the vibe is like so different. Mm. And I, I, so I think like, I think people maybe got turned off to that visually because they thought it was the same thing, but it was like, no, you guys are really getting something different. I thought that was really a value, but like something like Cowbell or, or Camp Hollywood at this point are basically doing the same thing where it's mostly the core of LA musicians plus this kind of core of North Carolina people coming in and then going, how many different ways can we Mr. Potato Head this together so that we can give you the most number of different discrete experiences. Speaking of which, um, I wanted to ask, and I think some people would be curious. So you don't just have the Campus Five. I think when we were talking, you have nine different bands, right? Would you be able to let us know? Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's gotten up to nine. And the funny thing is like, almost all of them were created for some swing dance event, most of them for Cowbell even, because mm -hmm. they needed something more than what we had, or they couldn't afford the thing that's one bigger than them. So, mm -hmm. um, and again, efficiencies. Um, the Grand Slam set sectet exists because Cowbell didn't want to have two nights of the Campus Five, and uh, because they didn't think that was sellable in the same way as having two nights of two different things, and they couldn't afford the orchestra. Okay, so we did that. And then the next year was like, okay, well, if you want a third night, uh, and you can't afford the orchestra or whatever, like, uh, let's do, okay, I'll come up with a Django band. So going back to the original thing, like the Campus Five was our first band, and that's our still our main band. That's the thing we do most of the time. Um, and very proud that all of the albums that we've done with that band are sort of like gold standards around the world and are just in every mm -hmm. teacher's teaching lineup. Um, but after about a year and a half, we had done an event where we had to do two bands on one stage. And I was sort of the main person arranging that situation. And the promoter was really impressed with how I'd done it. And I said, well, you know, if you ever need me to put together a big band, just let me know. And then they very dismissively put me back in my place and said, oh, yeah, don't get, don't, don't get ahead of yourself. And then like three months later or four months later, they called, they're like, okay, so we need to put, put together a big band. <laughs> Basically this, this was the largest monthly swing dance in LA and they yes. always had full big bands and they had had this one aberration where they had done two small bands, but they wanted to go out with Dean Mora, but they'd already hired him for the last thing. And so the night, the week before, so they didn't want to bring him back a second month because then that wouldn't be special. So they asked me to create a big band and I did. And I mean, it went, I, I've still got the tapes from that night. And I'm like, this has, it sounds so much better than it has any right to, because I didn't know what I was mm. doing, but I just picked songs that I would DJ and hoped that the charts that I'd gotten were close enough to that, that they would work. And amusingly, some of them had literally nothing to do with the version that I would expect <sighs> to DJ, but you know, mm -hmm. we figured a lot of that stuff out over the years. But so we had that, um, there was a while that Dean Mora's Modern Rhythmists were playing at Camp Hollywood every year. And so that, that kind of 20s, 30s energy was sort of an important thing to that event. Um, and then Dean sort of said that he was gonna be disbanding that band. And what we didn't understand at the time was he was just gonna call everything the Dean Moore Orchestra, um, but we thought he was getting rid of that band. And so I basically started a band to replace it doing the things that it did so that we could have that band at Camp Hollywood. Um, and so we had that for a while. We haven't done that in like a decade, I don't think, and I don't really need to ever do that again, because um, that's just not where my heart is. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, uh, uh, I'd rather see Dean do it. Um, uh, but 
but so then it was like, okay, come up with a grand slam sextet. Okay, now come up with with uh, um, the uh, uh, Le Boulevardier, uh, which is my, my Django band. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of things about Django style music as it's practiced that make it really kind of not that great to dance to. It's a lot of the same thing, like guitar solo after guitar solo. There's no drums, so there's very limited dynamics and it's sort of the same sound every night and all the tunes are sort of rather fast. Yeah. So I basically was like, okay, well, what if I use my, what I think about with danceability and I just use that format, but like play with it. And that, so that's what we did. I, I, there are definitely people that come up to me and be like, oh, that's my favorite band of yours. And I'm like, cool. It's the thing I do the least and I'm you know, probably less least invested in, but I'm glad you really dug that. Yeah. Um, um, Cause like the campus five, the orchestra and grand slam are really where my, my heart is. Um, but like watching for things like ILHC, a lot of times, oh, this is another efficiency thing. They would be like, okay, well, we can't afford the whole orchestra for two nights. Um, you know, and I'd be like, okay, well, I could do the campus five, but the problem is you want me to do the contest and I got to have like 10 choruses and I can't just have two horn players carry all of that. So can I get two more horn players? So I would basically do like campus five plus two is what I called it for years. And that was really just sticking some duct tape on the campus five and adding these other things on. And it was fine. It was danceable, whatever, but like, it just meant that like, I wasn't really deliberately taking advantage of that, those extra voices. And then people like Gamble came along with his octet and then Josh. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much more you can do with this than just upsize a campus five arrangement. Mm -hmm. And so um, in that case, we, we ended up changing the name of that for like the last year or two before the pandemic called the rug cutters. Yeah. So like at, at Camp Hollywood um, for the contests on Monday during the day, like we get, we do a whole thing where we're just playing for comps. That's all we do. And they're not all jam format. So it's not just like, and then the unending slog after unending slog, but there's a lot of those, but I thought, okay, what's the, what's the easiest way that I can do a jam contest without having to have a big band and that is nimble because I'm going to have to program music for a Jack and Jill that might be five songs. It might be seven songs. We don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to not, and the, and you know, TSA or Sylvia Sykes or whoever the head judges this year is going to walk up afterwards and be like, yeah, so I need one that's like this tempo. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, what's in the book, <laughs> you know, but then I've got a lot of voices. So what was cool about that is that we kind of did the rug cutters and then I added the vibes so that I could basically play any campus five song, any rug cutter song and any grand slam song in that mix and be able to draw from all of those things and then have five soloists. Cause if you add in the vibes and then me on guitar, that's like six discrete hot soloists that you can have in that band. And so that's what we do. So that's rug cutters. Uh, I think that's seven for the pandemic we did for cowbell, um, the remote cowbell. I had to come up with a quartet that was the least number of people possible with no wind instruments. So everyone could be masked. Mm -hmm. And so we came up with the uh, close shave quartet, which was, came, which I came up with because it was a, a format we had originally done for the barbershop that I go to, we would play their Christmas party. So that mm -hmm. was vibes, electric guitar, bass and drums. Um, so I think that's eight. Um, I'm actually, I actually have an, a new one and it's basically like a trio or quartet. That's just very, very guitar centric and that I basically have done like twice now um, 
because I was just out of town doing these guitar workshop events and yeah. doing kind of like guitar specific things. And a swing dance band is not necessarily the best showcase for somebody who's a guitar fan, but isn't a swing dancer. So mm. I needed to have something that's maybe not a dance band that I can take to a concert hall or take to a jazz club. So, so I think we're up to nine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And that, that's, and every one of these has been about like, what are the restrictions of this event that I have to work in and what can I do with that? What can I manage to do despite not getting the resources that I need or, you know, having limited resources. So going back, like, just think about like how much we're doing with how little. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally understood. I don't think, I don't think a lot of listeners um, maybe had a grasp of the breadth of your abilities and like the breadth of your band, which brings me to like the next question that I have. I didn't prep you for this one, but my question is, what are the things that when you did take your band to an event or to a night, what are the things that really got your heart going? The things that really got you really excited and happy and that just brought the spirit back of dancing into your life, whether it was an organizer, like music or. I mean, you know, there are so many of those. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the most obvious ones are the things where you have like the most direct sort of answering back from the crowd. So like, you know, uh, we would, we played, we headlined DCLX every year for like 10 years. And mm -hmm. so, especially with the big band, when Albert's in the band, um, flying home would be the end of the first set pretty much every time. Mm -hmm. And at the end of flying home, there's ba 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 boom. And Jerry uh, Almonte, the uh, great dancer, DJ, photographer, DC uh, guy, mm -hmm. would would take a picture at that moment every single year and get the 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 the, the flying home jump, and like like something like that, like every time. And and especially um, when Albert was playing with us. Um, and until he comes back, I, I don't really plan on really bringing flying home back because mm. I don't, I don't really want to do it without him. Um, mm. and I'm probably going to have to, at some point if, um, you know, if it gets to that point, but you know, he's, uh, he's driving now. So progress is being made. And, mm -hmm. uh, um, for anybody that didn't know Albert, our, our longtime sax player, Albert Alva, um, who basically was one of the founding inspirations of the band and is somebody we've always described as the heart and soul of the band. And that I really built the band to feature exactly what it is he does and how he plays. Um, and as that changed, I just followed where, where he was. Um, he had a stroke right before Camp Hollywood last year and it was just gutting um, for all of us. And I, I definitely had this progression of like, I would give anything for him to, <laughs> to, to survive. Mm. And it was like, okay, he's gonna survive. I'll give anything that he's not paralyzed. I'll give anything that he can walk. I'll give anything that he can be on his own. I'll give anything that he's not in hospice care for a long term and he's gonna be ba bankrupted by it. Uh, okay, he's out of the hospital and he's home and he's walking. Okay, I'll give anything. And now it's to the point where it's like, I'll give anything to get him to be able to play those songs with us again in that way. And it feels shitty because like, I've just been given gift after gift of the thing that I wanted. Like I would give anything for this. Um, and now we're to the point where I'm like, okay, well, we got all the other ones. Let's, let's get that last one. All right, come on. <laughs> um, and it's, it's hard. And there are, there are a lot of notable musicians that had strokes and came back or didn't came back. And there's, there's a lot to that. Um, but you know, 
playing flying home, especially playing it every, every night is something that I have a lot of qualms about. And so mm. I've been, I feel I've been feeling robbed of that experience of getting to like have that ba 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 thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe I just need to write a song that has that in it. Cause that's not the only song that does that. Um, Tickle Toe by Count Basie does that. Maybe I need to play a different song so I can get that, that energy. But like, you know, that's one of the ones that's just right up there. Um, but there's a couple others that I'll mention. Like the first time we played in Seoul, it blew me away how universally musical all of the dancers were. And I, I'm realizing, I realized then like, oh, this isn't necessarily like all of the soul dancers. Cause I, what I've been told is, I guess that scene is very like hyper regionalized to which club you go to. And so there's almost like 20 different Lindy hop scenes. And so we only mm-hmm. played at the one club, Big Apple for Nala Kim and, and his crew, uh, Lindy Blossom. And so I don't know but I knew that the people that went to that dance were like so unbelievably musical, like through the down the line. So I just remember the first song, bump, bump, ba, do, da, bump, bump. You hear that answer back on the floor. Like they were like so in tune that they were like catching things and, and hitting accents back. It was like, mm. oh my God, this is amazing. And then like uh, just a simple kind of dumb one is we play the song Boff Boff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, what's so cool is like, you play that song and you're going to play that riff. I think it's 12 or uh, six times over the head. And so by the end of it, like even the people that aren't that musical are like catching that. And they're like, yeah, you know, yeah. hearing that thing. Yeah. And when it's going out, everybody catches it. And then the last one, Ah, ow. And so the whole audience stomps on one, two, because they've mm. been, they're dancing musically and then we're not there and they just step in the hole. We're like, ah, I got you. And the <laughs> like, oh. you know, like, like for me, like that, that joke only works if people are listening and people are being musical. And that's, that's really special. Um, last thing that just sort of jumps out at me is, um, I started talking between songs because I saw Dean Morrow would do that. He would say, this person arranged this, this is from this year, blah, blah, blah. And I just liked that. And I, so mm. much of what we did when we started was basically like, what if Dean Mora had a band that didn't stop at 1936? Like that, mm. that was kind of what we just wanted. Um, and so I always did a little bit of talking and it, you know, part of the DJification of between songs was like, oh no, just get the show on the road. And, but, when Lindy, the, when Lindy Focus rolled around the first time we did the five big bands, I think it was 2014 or 15, um, we were all sight reading tons of these charts because there was not nearly enough rehearsal time for how much repertoire there was. And mm-hmm. um, so the first night I'm realizing like, I need to buy people a little bit of time to look at these charts and be like, okay, do I need my clarinet ready? Do I have a plunger mute? Do I need to stand up? Like what's going on? Okay. Or do I have the solo? Yeah. You have the solo. Okay. Whatever those things were. Um, just so they'd have a minute. And so I just kind of would get up and just sort of extemporaneously sort of explain whatever I came to mind of, of every of each song and just things I'd read and pieced together. And some of it was about the music itself. Some of it was about the historical dancers that made things to this music. 
and what were their favorite songs like we all know frankie loves shiny stockings and as much as i don't like 50s basie you know if you're going to do a night of count basie at lindy focus like you can't not also include that right um, and so it was very it was kind of fun actually to be able to like okay this isn't about my taste this is about duke ellington or count basie and representing them in a way that's still like consistent with my dance values but i can sort of sure um i love that release valve effect of that but like if that's about frankie that's not about it that's mm -hmm. not even about shiny stockings that's about yeah frankie, you know and like you know norma's favorite songs things like jive at five uh you know or or um uh -da -da, oh, I, I, know, I can't remember the name of it but another 50s bassy tune or you know hal take here told me his favorite song was was lady be good and then mm. it was funny because uh the Artie Shaw version. And at one point, um, Marge told me that, no, his favorite song was one o'clock jump. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. But like, you know, when I play one o'clock jump, I think about how, when I play, you know, some of these songs, I think about the people that, that did them. When I think about things about like things that Sylvia Sykes has told me about things. And so it wasn't just about like the music. It was about the culture of Lindy Hop and Balboa and all of these related swing dances and all this stuff. And even about like kind of the modern culture of like, oh, we all know this song is done by this person in this routine, but here's actually the original version or whatever. Um, and then that sort of evolved into something where people were actually really listening because Lindy Focus gave people an excuse to like really hone in on the music more than anything else to focus on it, if you will. And yeah. um, <laughs> And so like, I started kind of leaning into that. Um, and then kind of within the couple of years, we had things like we had Chick Web Night and there's this famous story about basically my son being born and mm -hmm. um, going and not being able to take him home right away. And then going back to the hospital and listening to Chick Web's clap hands, here comes Charlie, because we were <laughs> going to get Charlie and like, you know, basically telling this story and having not a dry eye in the house, you know, it's like, it's so much more than just about the little things and at some of those events like people would be so focused on the music they would actually stop dancing mm -hmm, and that's mm -hmm. sort of like this perverse thing where i'm kind of like no i want you to dance i'm like yeah but i actually i'm actually kind of blown away that like you're you love dancing and but in this moment you just want to watch yeah like that 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 is such a level of like because ordinarily i think if people weren't dancing like the band sucks to dance to and they're just like oh all right now what but like it's kind of like where you come back on the around the so far on the pendulum that it goes all the way around again. You're like, oh wow, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So like that stuff, and and I'll tell you one other one last thing that jumps to mind is like so much of what our band was about originally was kind of the concept of like deep cuts. Mm. Okay, like if you're a hip hop DJ back in the day, you would rip the you would rip the labels off your records because you didn't want anybody else to play the same records as you. And that that was part of the problem was that like to be special if you weren't generating the beat yourself you had to find other beats to curate and mm. much like our band at the beginning it was all about our curation of it because mm -hmm. i was trying to just do a faithful live version of the version that i would dj um and at a certain point like every other band can just go find that recording and play that tune Mm -hmm. And but but for years we really focused on and still do to some extent focusing on deep cuts like I'm not playing in the mood ever still haven't 21 years in a band leading still haven't played in the mood. 
you know, if it if it Lindy Focus 45 in a million years from now, we get to Glenn Miller because we've run out of everything to do. I will finally be happy to play in the mood and be like, you know what? <laughs> We've been waiting for it all this time, and you know what? We're all sick of this song, and you know, but but like, yeah, it has a, it has a. I'll look forward to that then. Not yeah. much, yeah. but like, because of that, like, we never played sing, 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 mm. and well, and even before that, like, for many years, like, you'd look up some old swing song that we'd recorded, and the only versions that have ever been recorded were like the original and ours, mm-hmm. and then it kind of flipped where like we went to Bordeaux to play a gig. And I was so proud of this one song that I'd found that was like a deep cut. It's called Black Market Stuff by uh, Herbie Hamer, who's a really obscure tenor player. But it was like Nat Cole and Buddy Rich and Charlie Shavers. It was like a monster band, but just on this obscure leader. And the song's killer. It's like the perfect medium tempo. And I was like so proud that I was like had this new deep cut. And like that was the title track of the band we were playing Opposites album. I was like, oh, crap. No. Like if everybody's got the same same records in their crate, like then it start. I my my digging has no value, mm. um, and so we were really focused on deep cuts. And there's a way that we've sort of evolved past just deep cuttery because it, now there's Spotify and YouTube, and you don't even need to get the record anymore. You can just Google it, and it'll come up. And you're you're there's no work to that at a certain point, but. Um, we never played sing 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 and then so we get to lindy focus and we've got to do an entire night of benny goodman it's like how can you ignore that Mm. and when we finally did it the thing i thought to tell people about it was we've all had this song be something that was like the thing you know about swing music was this and then you got into swing music and you're like hey that's the thing i like and then you got to the point where like i'm so sick of this because there's so much more and i'm all i'm getting is this one thing and we get sick of it and we never think about it again and we think of it as really hacky or really just overwrought or we've all but we've all danced to a band that has no soul and no care and the drum solo goes on for 25 minutes of onanistic rambling and it sucks to dance to mm. but like we i told everybody like we just ran this at soundcheck and i was like reminded like oh no this is special this is sincere this means something this is and like, we're only going to do this if you guys are on board. Are you guys on board for this? Are you guys ready for this? And we did it. And it was this like religious experience of like mm. reveling in this thing that's so special. And yeah. it can only have that meaning if you separate it out and only do it once in a while and only make mm. it like the dessert and not the, the, the main course. And Lindy Focus has been home to any number of those things and like, playing through some of the chick web songs that literally like no live band has played that arrangement in like 80 years. Yeah. Um, I know, I know people have complained when I've said, Oh, no bands have played this song since so and such. And it was like, Oh, it turns out somebody else transcribed it. And the, you know, I was like, well, I didn't know that. And also that still defeats. That's not my point is that so mm. much of this is that way. And that like, you know, please forgive me if I, if I overstate a little bit, but like, the most of this repertoire is gone. Like some of those songs, like you can't even DJ the original version because it's too scratchy. So like that interaction of like stuff is really important to me. And yeah. Gotcha. No, no, no. That's amazing. So we had to like jump back on here, but towards the tail end, you were saying how much of a religious experience it was to do Sing 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 at Lindy Focus, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's something really special about Oh, you know, we haven't even talked about jam circles. 
No, not yet. No, but we can definitely I do mean, that. Like, like it used to be that like there was a jam at every single dance back in LA in the in the, in the, the early two thousands, late nineties. And I mean, maybe that wasn't great. Maybe that was forced and dumb or whatever. And mm. but like, there was something really really special about jam circles. And I just remember there were bands that were like jam killers. Mm. They're like, no, we're playing our three minute song. And we're done. We're not going to open this up for you. And I was like, all right. Okay, Campus Five rule book. Step one, no jam killing. <laughs> and um, and to this day, I, I never try to kill a jam. There are times where I can't keep it going. Mm. And I have to like kind of bring it down for a landing and I feel bad, but that's that's relatively rare. Mm. But like like uh, there have been many DCLXs or ILHCs or Camp Hollywoods or Lindy Focuses or whatever, where there's a jam that breaks out. It's like, all right. Good thing we got the big band on stage because we're going to be going mm. or or um one of the videos that i love most of the band is us playing in budapest at, at lindy shock mm. and we're playing jam the blues which is another song we really haven't done since albert's uh, been out um uh like that's one of those ones where a jam breaks out and like we're just gonna ride it for however long 10 minutes fine whatever let's keep it going um and there's sort of a natural kind of like everybody come back to the come back to the band moment when the drums kind of take over and it's like okay um and like that's just such a like a connected thing and like the best musicians that i work with they all kind of like look at what's going on and are reacting to it and are, are interacting with it and i'm like that's one of the things about josh Colazzo that's like as though like he wasn't already one of the most period correct style drummers around he's also got the biggest ears he's got amazing chops he's got the best taste he's got all of these things but he's also somebody that like you know competed in contests at camp hollywood and placed in them and won in them and was like a real jitterbug and you know um like so when he sees an aerial coming he's able to hit it in a way because he knows that step yeah you know and maybe he hasn't done it in 20 years, but so what? Like, you know, like yeah. he knows what it is. And he's always interacting and it got his ears open and his eyes open. And, you know, I, I think it's hard. I did a class uh, and I was kind of working with um, uh, John Tigert and Ryan Calloway and um, uh, from St. Louis. Um, oh my God, blanking on his name. Uh, uh, Christian? Yes, Christian, Christian Frommel. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, all of them play instruments besides being great dance instructors. And so yeah. for fun, we just kind of did like a, a class, or I think I crashed the class that they were teaching where it was like interacting to the band and like doing it one-to-one -one of like what I play on guitar to like what someone does out on the floor. Like I have trouble like making it so like, I don't know, matchy matchy or whatever. Like I don't, but like, there's definitely like a thing where I'm aware of like what I'm trying to do and keep that jam going and, keep it exciting and not just like keep banging our heads into it. Like, no, you got to like have an arc. You got to have ups and downs. You got to have like a flow. Otherwise it's just kind of like, you know, yeah, too much of the same thing, but like, yeah, those connectivities, those interactions, like that's, that's so much what it's about. But, but even then, like on a totally opposite level, like there's nothing I love more than playing like a real nice medium tempo song and just having the floor filled because everyone's like, mm. yes, this I can mm. get into, like, even if I couldn't hang at the last one because it was too slow or too fast, like, this is where I'm at. And yeah, um, I don't make the, 
it's gotten to the point where I love the musicians that made this music so much that mm. I can do gigs where I'm just talking about them and playing for them. Like I, I would love, Josh actually had the idea and God, if there's anybody listening that knows how to do this, that's a promoter or a theater producer, like I would love mm -hmm. to take the kind of thing that we did at Lindy Focus on the road to performing art centers. Mm. Like bring in some dancers, but they don't have to dance the whole show, but like we can have them, I can talk about these different artists and highlight, you know, who's important and build a core and a theme and stretch all this stuff out. Like I'm happy to do that because I love Charlie Christian so much. Like mm -hmm. I like one of the things we're not going to do this year, which really bummed me out, is we're not doing a Charlie Christian concert. Um, and that's one of my favorite things that I do every year is a Charlie Christian birthday concert. Where we just talk about this really important guitar player that is just kind of everything. It's my son's namesake and all this stuff. I can do that to a just guitar audience and mm -hmm. yes, that's fine. But like Lindy Hop and Balboa and all of these related dances, this is why I do this thing. This is why this mm -hmm. mattered to me originally. And so like, even just the, like the little quotidian thing of like, I play a medium tempo bop and somebody's just like really getting down. I'm like, yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I comment on, on somebody's, it was, it was uh, Tedrick, uh, uh, he was rocking out to our recording of Jam and the Blues. And it didn't occur to me that it was our version because like, it's just a TikTok or a, an Instagram video. But then I was like, wait, I think that's us. And then Albert's <clears throat> solo starts. And I was like, wait, I think that's Albert. I'm pretty sure. Cause like back in the day, we were the only band that played that song. Mm -hmm. And it really sucked if another band started trying to play that song. Cause I was like, oh, you're stealing our thing. And it's like, wait a second you didn't write that you just discovered it so like maybe don't claim it but obviously i think there's some sense of fair play and curation that you shouldn't just sure. like steal the stuff other people do and rather than coming up with your own curation of things i mean there's a there's a thing to that but like i know i don't own it so like there are other bands that play it um but like that was our signature closing song for like most of our career and i know other bands recorded so i didn't assume it was ours and then i heard albert and i was like oh that's ours and like, I love his dancing so much. And I just love mm. his lines. And so I was like, it, I just, I love watching, I commented, I love watching you dance no matter what, but like it, 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 it just, it's so much more special to watch you dance to music I'm making or made, mm. you know, that really speaks to me. And so like, anytime somebody does an Instagram video or, or whatever, and, and like tags us in it, cause they're dancing to one of our recordings. It's like, yeah, that just, that feels amazing. You know? So then I think that's where we're going to make the comment is, um, at the end of all of my podcasts, I have people comment below the video. And so just comment your favorite uh, Campus 5 song or Jonathan Stout song that you absolutely love. So that's the, if you made it to the end of the podcast, that's what you need to add. So speaking of which, um, before we go into like the ending questions, um, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about today? Well, it was funny because we... We, we talked about this earlier, but we didn't really get into it. But like, um, I think there are some people because the scene is so young that like forget or never knew that I was a dancer first. Yes, yeah, and, that's true, and yeah. I just wanted to mention that. Um, uh, I feel like if you really want to do it, you can just go listen to Ryan Swift's podcast because I it's a mm -hmm. long podcast, we get into it. And I've definitely uh -huh. told that story a number of times in different places. But the long and short of it was like, I was a kid that, you know, started playing guitar because I was an awkward teenager and thought it would be a way to meet girls and thought that would be cool. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a cishet white guy. So that's pretty on, on brand. 
and uh uh and that didn't work because <laughs> apparently <laughs> goth industrial music was not the the chick magnet that i thought it was um but like um i started swing dancing kind of for kind of very similar reasons like oh this is an activity and like maybe this will be something that's cool and my Spanish teacher, I went to this magnet school and our Spanish teacher had done tango lessons. She got sick of tango. So the next year sort of as an extracurricular thing for all of us weird magnet kids was to like have us take this uh, swing class. And there was something about it that just instantly just got me. It was like a real monkey meet the monolith moment. Mm -hmm. And um, and it just spoke to me. And so everyone would like, we would sort of like do practices during lunch. And I was the only one that was like, had to do this. Mm. And it got me to jazz very generally. And I was, I had already started playing guitar. So I got into jazz guitar and got me sort of later styles of jazz. And for a variety of reasons, I danced some, but not consistently through high school, but um, especially at the very end of high school, like I really started dancing again. And that summer um, I ended up going to college here in Los Angeles at USC. And so like, I didn't go anywhere to go off to mm. college. I basically just went across town. So I was going to some of the same places. And finally that summer I realized, oh, there were things outside of the few places that I'd been to. And I was like, oh. And like the person that taught us was this person that was very early in the sort of thing of there being like a Hollywood style and people figuring out that like, oh, this is not what they teach at Arthur Murray. And this is not what they teach at PBDA. This is this other thing. that's like this Dean Collins style Lindy Hop. Mm -hmm. So she taught us that. So I would go places. And if you tried to whip somebody in a Dean Collins style and they didn't understand that because that wasn't universally known, they would fall yeah. over. Like the follow would fall backwards because they would try to be walking out instead of anyway. Yeah. Um, but like that summer, I went somewhere where there were actually people that were doing Hollywood style or Dean Collins style Lindy Hop. And I was like, oh my gosh, mind blown. And then I went to college at USC and like within like two weeks, I meet Nick Williams and we end up going to college together. And you know, oddly, I'd started studying guitar at that time in school also, even though I wasn't planning to be a professional musician. Um, mm -hmm. For whatever reason, I for a variety of reasons, I started not really being into guitar. And I got really into dancing. So I was going seven nights a week and basically carpooling with Nick. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, uh, I met my wife that way. We met like basically spring of my freshman year of, of college at a dance. Uh -huh. And um, basically by the end of that that year of dancing like that hardcore um i basically gave up playing guitar i said i'm done with guitar playing i don't want to have anything to do with it i'm sick of all this later jazz that i was into 50s 60s jazz that's also part of why i bump on kind of later styles of jazz because it's like reminds me of the thing that i didn't enjoy at a certain point but mm -hmm. i had this like kind of crazy thing where a month into my summer vacation i rented this movie with my best friend uh uh Sweet and Lowdown, which is this Woody Allen movie, obviously Woody Allen problematic. Um, and the main character is very misogynistic and problematic in a lot of ways, but thankfully is not portrayed as a hero because of them. He's portrayed as not good for those reasons and unsympathetic. Yeah. But the hero is basically this broken person who is somebody that thinks he's the best guitar player in the world, but is also keenly aware that he's actually no Django Reinhardt's the best guitar player in the world. But he's this kind of American fake Django style player that never really existed, but it's kind of portrayed as though it's a documentary almost. And uh, um, I was like, wait a second, Django. That kind of brings the swing dancing thing I've been doing and the guitar thing I've been doing. And maybe I should think about that. And I started trying to play at my friend's house because we grew up playing guitar together. 
And I started trying to kind of fake sounding like Django and it was so much more natural than all the jazz I'd tried to play up to that point. And I was like, oh, this is what I should do. And then my, my uncle's a trombone player and professional arranger um, here in Los Angeles. And at several points in my development as a guitar player, he'd got me a lesson for my birthday with somebody that was doing whatever I was into. When I was goth industrial, I was like, here's a person that uses effects and, and delays and stuff. And okay, you got into jazz, here's a bebop guy. Went totally over my head. Mm. For that year, I said, do you know anybody that plays swing guitar? He's like, oh, I know this guy from Disneyland. And it was John Reynolds, who I knew from Mora's <laughs> band, but I didn't know that's who I was showing up to meet. I just got this lesson so I show up to this guy's house and it's John Reynolds. And it's just like, pff, mind blown. <laughs> and so I started, and I, I remember I came back from that lesson and Eric and Sylvia, who were still teaching at that time, were running a weekly dance in North Hollywood. And I came back and my wife tells the story that like basically like all of a sudden everyone was like, wow, wait, you took a lesson from John Reynolds? Like my stock in the world had just risen immediately. In a way, you know? <laughs> and, but like for the next two years, basically that was 2000, I basically was learning the swing guitar by myself after that one lesson and doing it in my bedroom and then going out as many nights a week as I could up to seven nights a week and competing and going to different events and, and stuff like that. And, and like, I didn't mention, but like Camp Hollywood 99 was that first part of freshman year. And that was literally like the moment where I was like, oh my God, this is the thing that means the world to me. I'm going to do this the rest of my life. And it was mm -hmm. being in the first class on the Saturday morning or Friday morning or whatever it was. And being in a class where it's Eric and Sylvia teaching with Jean Veloz and her brother, Ray Phelps. Mm. And, and her brother was her favorite partner. Uh, and like, there was the actual lady from Groovy Movie. And, you know, like she's right there and she's dancing. Yeah. And I was like, no, this is alive and living and this is real. And it, I always had this kind of like somebody that's somebody that's like an elder millennial. I've got these Gen X leaning. So everything's this alternative rock knee jerk reaction against things and very punk rock. Like, oh, we're not into that hair metal stuff. That's lame. Now we're into this. Like that's, that's not the real thing. This is the real thing. That's like the corporate crappy version. I had those values and I realized those are sort of juvenile. But mm. I very much looked at it like, oh, I'm not going to get clip-on suspenders and buy two-tone wingtips. That's like the <laughs> cookie-cutter obvious version. I'm going to get the real, you know, like the yeah. real thing. And, you know, like, obviously that's juvenile and there's limits to that, but it made me really go deeper. And so that two years, I was like dancing all the time, learning the music on my own. And basically the way that the thing kind of shifted was Josh Colazzo had had a very similar thing where he was dancing but also played drums and then got into that style of drumming because of his love of this old jazz. And I think, I don't know that he would put as fine a point on it, but I think he was also informed by the fact that like the swing that we liked and that was special and authentic to use a word in quotes that I realize is, you know, problematic and, and at the end of the day, isn't really what it's about anyway, but like that kind of actual 1930s and forties music, like had a different feel in the way you play the drums and that you need to, do that differently. I was mm -hmm. informed the same way. And he was playing with um, a band leader uh, who later turns out is a terrible sexual predator and a horrible human being and thankfully is no longer a part of the world, but he did have a pretty good band. And so mm -hmm. Josh ended up playing in that band after one of his mentors uh, um, was out of it. And so after playing in that band for a while, Josh was inspired to start his own band called the Feet Warmers. And he basically hired John Reynolds and Albert Alba and Corey Jem 
and a good bass player and um, had a first gig and John Reynolds couldn't make the first gig. Josh and I had met and jammed once. And so he's like, oh, can you read the stuff? I was like, yeah, I can read the charts. And, and, and so I got to do the first gig with that band. And then I was sort of John Reynolds sub for six months on and off. And I learned more about playing guitar in that six months than I had in the two years before that, because I was actually doing it with people. It's like mm. if I was watching videos all by myself, swing dancing, and then all of a sudden got to go dance with people, yeah. dance with good people and be informed like, oh, that's what it's supposed to feel like. Um, and so at the end of that six months, Hillary, you know, she's she's been a singer her whole life and her mom was a jazz singer and jazz piano player. and. Um, so she's like, hey, like, why don't we start a band? Like Josh did this thing and this is really great. Like, wouldn't it be nice to have one other band you could actually dance to and that didn't suck? Because <laughs> yeah. there were all these Zoot Suit, Daddy-O and the Flaming Martini Wingtip style bands and all these like ja jazz bands that were like too jazzy and not really playing swing music or, you know, seven minute songs and whatnot. And even yeah. the hot jazz bands were like seven minute songs. So it, like, what if we had that? So it was sort of her idea. So. We basically started it in the middle of 2002 at Camp Hollywood, which was then uh, in the middle of the summer. And our first gig was basically late night at Camp Hollywood. And that was the year that we competed. And like, I got second in Am Bal with, with my mm -hmm. wife and my wife and I um, were in the on the top team. And but like, I could see like, yeah, I think my contribution to this is, is going to be this thing. And we basically got did a, a handful of gigs. I take it back. That was our second gig. To be just to be, Quest. This ends up on a Wikipedia page someday, <laughs> but it's okay. Um, second gig, but we got enough gigs pretty quickly that like, the things that worked coalesced, and that there's a kind of Campus Five sound, and it's mm -hmm. something that basically those are the things that worked the first time, and that I would go, okay, yeah, this works. This replicates the same way. I'm a DJ in my head, sort of. And so when I play this track, if the track comes out differently, then that's not getting me what I wanted. So I want it to, I don't want it to be like cookie cutter, but I want it to like have the same journey every time or kind of do the same effect, but sincerely and not manipulatively, but sincerely. And that sort of um, the things that worked and replicated consistently gig after gig were the things that we leaned into. We did our first record and like very quickly, we started getting hired at things because it was actually fun to dance to us as opposed <laughs> to like, and I didn't know what I was doing at all. And I was, you know, like not at all that great a musician. And I didn't even get to be as good as a musician as I am now until very recently, I feel like, and I'm still mm. like, there's so many geniuses on their instruments and I'm not that I'm very workmanlike, but we got a lot of opportunities right away because there just wasn't anybody doing like capital S swing music that wasn't like, um, kind of a radio review or like had army uniforms that we all put on as a costume or whatever. And not, not to like poo poo that, but like there's a version of that that isn't sincere and good. And this was just a hundred percent sincere, a hundred percent about this. And then it was a hundred percent tailored to the dance and tailored to the scene that we have. Um, and that's just sort of how things started. And then within, you know, I think two years we had a big band within three years our big band is at lincoln center playing midsummer night swing way before we probably deserved it but like you know where else were you going to find a, a big band that was playing music that was that tailored to the scene um, and played deep cuts and didn't play all the obvious stuff that we're all sick of and that isn't even that good um so 
and then yeah slowly but surely i just very rarely get to dance and now that i'm a parent like i really can't go anywhere unless someone's paying me to be there because i just can't justify mm -hmm. being out um sure and that feels very weird and a lot of my times when i'm on a gig i really need my band breaks so i can't even dance on my band breaks mm -hmm. um but it's still the thing that speaks to me the most and like as an angelino i know this is the, the socal summer swing out like this is about socal oh. Uh -huh. there's something that I have a lot of pride in that I've never really lost my regional dance accent. Mm. I still whip. I still am yeah. in this Dean Collins style, Lindy hop. And I like, I went to Bobby McGee's when it was still happening and I got Balbo, you know, Bart Bartolo yelling in my ear and, you know, giving <laughs> me advice, you know, so Balboa and Lindy hop are really special to me. And I have this very strong regional dance accent. And so what's kind of funny is I'll get asked by people to dance that are so far above my station. Because they're like, oh yeah, you do that 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 one thing that's really specific. Like that's cool. I want to get some. I was like, yeah, all right. Like, that's that's really gratifying. But it's also like, just because I'm I haven't grown as much as a dancer, uh, and to learn other things. But you know, there's something special about this one slice of of Lindy Hop that I still know how to do. Um, but yeah, I don't get to dance much anymore because of that. But I still like. This is the goal of like satisfying our scene is why I exist. Well, let me just say, I think I speak for a lot of dancers that we're very glad that you took that leap and that you are part of the scene and giving back the way you are. We really, really appreciate that. And you are fantastic at it, sir. You really are. Um, all right. But I think this will take us towards our last three questions of the night. Um, so the first question is essentially, what events are you going to be going to for the rest of the year? Where can we catch uh, the Campus Five? um camp hollywood lindy focus presumably cowbell um i think we're in talks to do something in chicago although that's not finalized um that's about it and then here yeah. in los angeles and unfortunately here in los angeles like um you can see it us at atomic ballroom on the 14th uh mm -hmm. which is next week uh you can July 14th, you can see us in Ventura on August 26th. Um, but other than coming to Knott's Berry Farm on a Sunday, which was very nice, we have this Knott's Berry Farm gig and it's very cool to play for a mix of some people that are clearly swing dancers and friends. And then uh -huh. a huge segment of just gen pop, regular people. And yes. what's nice is we're able to do what we do and only ever so slightly change it so that like I just I just kind of like pick my shots about what I say about a song a little bit more specifically and like yeah. I just kind of like and like we only get to play two sets so I like really have to like hone it down to like the core of what we do and it, it's hard because I was those are the best songs and I don't want to just only play those songs every time and but um but yeah outside of that like it's basically like Camp Hollywood Focus or um or Cowbell or these like two local events but um one thing I would say is if you want us, please tell us because we can't do this stuff without you. I, I'm an okay band leader and an okay guitar player. I'm a terrible promoter. I'm a terrible social media person. I need help. I need partners. And I know when the venue um, in Pasadena here opened, I was really hoping somebody would step up and start running like a dance that we could play at somewhat regularly there. And nobody seems really available for that. I get it. Like we all have lives. It's all hard. And like, I know every time somebody says, you got people, we need to all support events because events are really need our help right now. And then 
one person will be like, look, man, I'm sorry. I'm giving all I got and that's it. And maybe don't make me feel bad about it. I'm like, yeah, fair. But the first thing is still true. And you know, <laughs> I get that not everybody can, can give right now and still, you know, but like you need to come out every time, every single time. And you need to pick and choose what you're going to as carefully as possible to value the things that you that value and that need the help things that are expensive, things that are difficult, things that have a higher level of quality um, because those are the things that need it, so. Yeah, 100%. And second on that, that's one of the reasons why we're friends. I'm the talker. I'm the one that's like, yeah, let's do this. And so hopefully we'll get you some more. So if you are an organizer listening to this right now, um, reach out. Speaking of which, that's a perfect segue. Where can people reach out to you or where can they find information about you, the band, if maybe they want to hire you or something like that? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, our website is campus5.com, C-A-M-P-U-S-F-I-V-E.com. Do not use the numeral five. Anytime you're speaking of the Campus Five, it is F-I-V-E. The numeral five will take you back to a 2007 version of our website that I can't figure out how to reroute. At some <laughs> point, I will get to that. But campusfive.com, that's got our calendar. Obviously, follow us on Facebook. Um, the, the Campus Five is on Facebook, and all of my bands have their own Facebook page, which is exhausting. You can also follow Jonathan Stout Swing Guitar on Facebook, which I tend to kind of cross-post to and also just put my guitar-specific stuff. And then my Instagram is at Campus Five. And then my email addresses are on our website, as is my phone numbers. Like, you want us to play your gig, we will come do your gig. Please, we need them. Do it. All right. Those are all, that's all the information. And I will, Oh, go one ahead. more, one more. Uh, no, the other thing I was going to say is, um, in this age of Spotify, um, if you like an artist, it is incumbent upon you to not just stream the artist, but buy the, the song. You buy the song once, you never need to listen to that recording again. You can stream it forever guilt-free. Mm. The streaming model grotesquely underpays artists and it has made the universe of music cheaper to more people and available to more people than it's ever been before, but it's at the cost of artists being able to make a living. And so, and it's not, I'm not talking about like Dua Lipa, she's doing fine. Like Drake mm. does not need the help, but like when it comes to like an independent artist, somebody like us, um, if you're if you're streaming that song without having a copy you don't even have to download it just go to bandcamp and buy it and then don't download it it doesn't matter but give us buy a copy of it and then listen to it forever on streaming and it's fine um because that's really important so campus5.bandcamp.com and jonathanstout.bandcamp.com for my kind of guitar specific stuff um buy a copy. It's on iTunes. It's in the Apple, the, the Amazon store, like wherever you get it. But if, if it matters to you to have these artists continue, like you need to spend the $10 to buy a copy because it costs way more than $10 to make. And like, we're really lucky, like because of the way Spotify works, believe it or not, like just the fact that Swinging on Nothing and Shoe Fly Pie on our, our first album and the fact that they're on beginning swing low tempo playlists that's a certain amount of money that we make every month mm. but it's not even close to a living and mm. it's better than nothing and i'll gladly take it but like it's so important to have 
you know, actual contributions by the artists and buy merch. Like if you like a band and they have t-shirts, buy the t-shirts. Did the band not be able to bring a box full of t-shirts to the gig? Go on Bandcamp and pay the shipping. Like just do it, you know? Um, buy two, like it doesn't matter. Buy it for a friend. Um, anything you can do to give money to a band. Um, if a band has a Venmo, just tip it. Like it doesn't matter um, because, you know, we, re we really need it. And then the other thing is like, there's nothing that substitutes for showing up and like, I get it. We all have busy lives, but like, just know that like, if you go to the same venue and the one day they had a live band and you didn't go, that live band can't turn around and play there again because you didn't go. And mm -hmm. it's not anything about their quality. I mean, you'd think this all works out in the wash, but fortunately it doesn't, you know, you need to support the things that matter to you. And if last thing I'll say, cause this is about that point about taste, if you don't like what we do, don't come. It's cool. Like vote with your dollars, vote with vote to go with what matters. Um, but I, I hope that people do find that what we do matters and is worthy of, of support. Thank Yeah. And a hundred percent agree with that. All the links to everything Jonathan was saying is down below Bandcamp, Instagram, all those links. So highly encourage you to go down there. Additionally, as a reminder to anyone listening, the last thing that you have to add in the comments below is your favorite song from the Campus Five, okay? Now, the last question that I ask all of my guests is what is a message that you want to leave for any Lindy Hoppers or swing dancers that are listening? The, the thing that has driven me the whole time, whether it was the kind of juvenilia way of thinking about it that like, oh, that's not the real thing. This is the real thing. And that sort of myth of authenticity, but kind of under, under reframing that in a way and understanding that it's really about carrying on a tradition. The thing that I would say is this is a tradition that has been around for like almost a hundred years or, I mean, Lindy Hop has been around almost a hundred years mm -hmm. and jazz and, and jazz dancing and its various forms have been around over a hundred years. And if you are not grounded in and rooted in that tradition, then your art means less. Mm. And it does not have as much to say as you think it does. Because whatever you have to say, somebody maybe said that before it, maybe there's a way to say it that really gets it. And it just, it's like, you're not reinventing the wheel. And if you did reinvent the wheel, you just worked too hard because somebody already did it and you could have gone, you could have built upon that. And so there's always a struggle of like what's in the tradition and what's sort of outside of it. And that's for individuals to say and have their own taste and have their own judgment. And we all have to make that decision for ourselves. But the thing that I think is the most important and it's what I think a lot of modern jazz musicians lack is like they lack the tradition, they lack the legacy. They kind of jumped in midstream and just sort of started there. And they don't have, and I don't, I'm not saying you have to be a scholar going back to like, you know, recreating things out of a book, but mm -hmm. like, this is a part of a tradition. It was made by people that mattered and their stories matter and their legacies matter. And like, if you're somebody that's like, I, I don't watch clips. What am I supposed to give you a prize? Cause you don't know about the history of Lindy hop. That's not special. That's not clever. You should know about who those people are and you should care. And you know, if you've never gone to like Bobby White's swung over blog, I mean, that's probably the best place to get the entire history of Lindy Hop and Balboa and various swing dances and, 
and like identifying the people in those photos and those clips because sometimes it's hard to know who they are um and same thing with like ryan swift's podcast is just you know more so about sort of the last 40 years of lindy hop and knowing how those people are like they already existed and have respect and reverence for the tradition and i don't want anybody to be like stuck and beholden to it that they have to be like a reenactor but like you know, if you're not doing it out of a love of the tradition, go find some other genre to play with. Go find some other art form, you know? Like, don't mess this one up and, and lose, have it lose its ground, have it lose its connection to what it is and was just because you don't care. Like, go do something else. It's why, it's why every time I see a jazz musician who doesn't love this music on a swing dance gig, it bums me out because I'm like, you're just condescending to this thing we like and you don't love it go find, go be on another gig. You don't need to be on this gig. You could go be on a gig you actually like. And if you're going to complain about three minute songs, it's like, well, you know, on one level back in the thirties, yeah, there weren't three minute songs quite the same way. If you listen to radio broadcasts, but it's not like people's attention spans were that much longer. And your seven miss, seven minute jazz odyssey is definitely not that interesting to an audience mm -hmm. full of swing dancers. And, you know, like, it's not about that they don't value the jazz bullshit no sorry mm, this mm. is a different thing you're not valuing their jazz mm. it's not that they don't value yours you're misunderstanding this and you think that like you're the king of the castle it's like no this is a tradition lester young came before you and you know if you don't understand if you've only know charlie parker and you don't know lester young then you don't understand charlie parker as well because that's where charlie parker took many of the things it's the same thing with all of these dancers if you look at you know whatever dancer and you don't understand dean collins or al mins or whatever like you're not getting it um so yeah understand this tradition have love for it have reverence for it because they are these people and they their stories matter and who they were matters and the context of what they were matters yeah and, that, and that's another thing like yeah nice wrap up last question we'll do this a quick one right <laughs> but you know as we wrestle with all the things we've been wrestling with for the last couple of years like there's no better reason to like appreciate and have reverence for the tradition than the fact that like the context and the stories of these people matters because you have to be aware of the racism and all the sexism and all of these things and the, the homophobia and all of these things that enter into what happened and be able to like work with that and work through that and be aware of it and if you just don't care about the tradition then you're not doing that work and we would I think I think everybody agrees that we're not that we should do that and mm -hmm. then but if people are like well i don't want to i'm just going to innovate it's like well great but you're innovating and maybe you don't have a context maybe you don't maybe you're not grounded in any tradition and like mm -hmm. maybe you're lucky and you come up with something but like whatever revolutionaries there have been in art have always started from somewhere and to pretend that they came up with it from whole cloth is just a myth mm -hmm. and you know if you want to create a new genre of swing dancing like that's great but I'm here because I love, I, cause I, I'm here because I loved Jeannie Veloz and I loved mm. John and Ann Mills and I loved Norma and getting to talk to Norma and I loved all of these people and Frida. I mean, Frida was like a second grandma to me. Frida Angela, the, the rock and roll dancer, she, but she's mm -hmm. dancing in the 40s. But like, these people were special. Hal, Hal and Marge, oh my God. I mean, like, they're special to me in a way. And I'm just like, if you're not going to do this in a way that like, makes them have value then like your your art doesn't mean as much so anyway i have reverence for it fully respect that i have reverence for you
Ah, <laughs> I just have to say, like hearing you talk about that kind of stuff, it's always like, it's very, it's very like impactful to me as someone who's trying to be community oriented and someone who's trailblazing like what matters. I think that's a really cool way to wrap up the podcast. So thank you, Jonathan. Thank oh, you. Dude, for thank you. I'm, I was honored to be a part of it, and I'm so grateful to have this time to talk to you. Let's uh, yeah. let's talk. Let's talk the next time we can just about other stuff, whatever. Let's do it. Um, as terms of everyone else, thank you so much for laying us your ears. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on social media. Please also go and follow Jonathan on social media as well and click all the links down there. Like he said, make sure to buy the music. Spotify is not enough. Just go and buy it, okay? And oh, then- uh, uh, You know what? One thing I, I do have to say, also uh -huh. go ahead and follow at Camp Hollywood because- um, yes i've used a lot of i terms in talking about the band but all of our bands are co-run by hillary alexander unless she doesn't sing them in which case she doesn't usually bother but like the orchestra the the campus five rug cutters all that stuff it's all featuring hillary alexander and she is a co-owner co-runner of everything and um her taste and her vision is a huge part of all of this so 150 percent clear 150%. And I'll leave all Camp Hollywood stuff down in the comments as well. Don't go anywhere, Jonathan, after I stop recording. But everyone else, thanks so much for laying us your ears. Thank you again, Jonathan. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening. The music you are currently hearing is called Dances of the Night by Papa D. You can find all its links down below. Till next time. Don't lose hope trying to stand tall Trying to give the dance of yours the best that you got Every time that they hear this sound That music gets the feet above the ground Time just seems to stop in every move Seems all your life what is based on tonight And all you gotta do is do it right You gotta move, you gotta move, you gotta move, move, move Got to, got to, got to be a dude